Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to Starship Sova's show number 171. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy kicking off here with a, gr- a fantastic show. I'll tell you what's coming up. In today's show, we have Megan Argo with her Explained in 60 Seconds, all about tachyons. Then, the announcement, the 2011 Sofanaut Awards. Phil Horwood has correlated and put together and voting has finished. We have the results for the 2011 Sofanaut Awards. Then we've got an interview with John Joseph Adams. He's got a new book out, Brave New World. And we talk about everything in Brave New World and a little bit something special at the end of that interview as well that you might not have known about between John Joseph Adams and somebody else on the show today. (laughs) Then we have a story from John's new book, Is This the Day to Join the Revolution by Genevieve Valentine. Then Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back at Genre History. Then we're kicking off a serial. We have the first part of Kim Stanley Robinson's Escape from Kathmandu. So, a great show lined up. I hope you do agree. Before we get into that, yes, just a, a couple of things. Actually, just to give you a little bit of feedback on the meta show. That was, you know, it really, it's about time I kind of mentioned the results. I've mentioned some emails that I've gotten back. And... Well, I haven't actually gotten one back yet saying that the length of Starship so far is too long. And I have had, honestly, so many just straight come straight out, Tony, don't change the length. That length is what makes it. The length is perfect. If anyone has got a problem, this is like the kind of overall feeling. Let them pause, let them skip. That's what the enhanced feeds for. But I've... To be quite honest, so many people, you know, it must have raised so many hackles when I said, you know, others, you know, some people aren't quite happy with that. Well, I haven't seen on the forum, the forum has such a massive long thread about it. You know, every single person there has said, you know, it's fine, it's great. Keep it that way. The emails, it was just when I first mentioned, I first kicked off that show, you know, that first week, I was just inundated with emails saying, the length is perfect. Don't change it. You know, yes, to more. Do you know what I mean? So there we go. I'm, I'm really pleased with that. You know, so and again with the the pain of writers. You know, it's everyone's. It's in the real world. You know, if we had to do that and everyone realizes that, then we'd have to charge the show. And you, you don't want to go down that way because then you know there's only certain people who would want to pay for it. But there's some people that that just love the show, just simply can't afford it, and you're going to alienate them, you know, and that's just not... And everyone agreed again with us there, so that was just a little feedback on 
some of the thoughts on that meta show. Do you know what I mean? It was it was nice to put it out there to get some feeling back. And I actually don't even need to put that in the newsletter when I send that out. You know, like a poll, because like I say, overwhelming the the response I got and you know the the kind of positive vibes I got from that show. You know, keep it length, keep it long, longer the better. So that's quite you know quite special. Thank you so much. <laughs> So, first up is Megan Argo with Explained in 60 Seconds. Megan! Explained in 60 Seconds. Tachyon. In the universe that we inhabit, the laws of physics say that the greater your speed, the more energy you have, and the more energy you need in order to accelerate. Imagine pushing Jabba the Hutt along a runway. The harder you push, the faster he moves, and the heavier he seems to get, so the harder you have to push to increase his speed, and the heavier he seems to get until you give up and collapse in a quivering heap before being shot by Boba Fett. Okay, now you've got that disturbing image in your head. Back to the physics. This effect limits the speed of anything with mass to less than the speed of light, since anything that had mass would require an infinite amount of energy to reach this speed. But what if you hold a mirror up to this idea? Imagine a particle travelling around the universe at a velocity much greater than that of light, but which requires more and more energy to slow down the closer it comes to that magical speed limit of 300,000 kilometers per second. These are tachyons, theoretical particles which are described mathematically, but have never been detected experimentally. If they did exist in reality, an interesting paradox could result. Since they travel faster than 300,000 kilometers per second, tachyons could be used to transmit information over large distances, much faster than the speed of light, which would lead to the possibility of sending signals backwards in time. Of course, this violates causality, paradoxically making it possible for an observer to receive a reply to a signal before the original signal was even transmitted. You'll find tachyons scattered liberally throughout science fiction, sometimes used as a device to explain time travel or as a means of long-distance communication, overcoming the problems of the delay that you might have if you used regular, low-speed photons. Sadly, as is so often the case, the word is also commonly misused as a mere tidbit of sciencey-sounding technobabble. There you go, Megan. Thank you so much. Did anybody see, just out of curiosity, Brian, Professor Brian Cox, good-looking lad, and Dora O'Brien that did on it was actually BBC did the Stargazing Live over three nights. Ah, I loved it. Do you know me? I watched it on. BBC iPlay, I you can still, I'm sure you can still get it there now. It was excellent. You know, if anyone's into the kind of stars and everything like that, it's fantastic. I love all that kind of stuff. So, everyone, it is that time of year again. The Sofa Note Awards have been correlated, have been dished out, and emails returned, and we have the winners. Today's episode has the winners of the Sofa Note Awards 2011. And it, hands down, it wouldn't have been put together if it hadn't been for Phil Horwood. Phil stepped in, Mark couldn't make it, who normally kind of did it for the last two years. And actually, I was going to not knock it on the head, but I wasn't really, it wasn't on me, in the back of my mind, you know, it wasn't really registering to do that. And then Phil just, you know, dropped us an email and said, yes, we'll, we'll get on with it, we'll, we'll get cracking with it. And Phil, honestly, thank you so much for, for doing it. Like I say, it's been so professionally done. It just makes my efforts on things I've tried to organise pale in significance. Thank you so much. Not a problem, Tony. 
Well, here we go then. So we have the winners. We, we, we will announce them now. And what we're going to do is we'd, I'm going to read some out, then Phil list the, the winner, name the winner. Then Phil's going to read some out, and I'll list the, or name the winner as well. So here we go. We're going to start off with number seven, which was favourite show. Now, in the favourite show, we had the Gord Seller show, Kim Stanley Robinson, plus the Jack Vance interview was in there, Lauren Santuro, which was in, which was part two. Then we had Peter Watts show, which was in. Then again, Larry Santuro was part one. <laughs> again, this fellow's turned up. Larry Santuro with part three. Then there was the Hugo special show. So, Phil, the winner, please. Opening up the winner's envelope, and the winner is the Hugo Special Show 152. Woo-hoo! Hooray! <laughs> and actually, you know, when I, when I recorded that, I always remember, somehow, I didn't get the, the actual recording right, and there was a lot of crackles, and, you know, I could have, when I think about it now, there was different ways I could have actually recorded, because I was actually doing the Ustream version as well, and I always remember I got so many emails saying, Tony, fantastic, you blew me ears out when, when I jumped up, <laughs> and it was, it was literally like, it must, it just hit the peak straight away, and for, you know, for however long I, I kind of lost it, it was just, Wah! so, yeah, I mean, and looking at the figures there, that one's really, and I'm sure that's the case with this one, Phil, it, it dominated from when we kind of sent it out, you know, this Hugo special was always been in the, you know, kind of the, the top one. That's right. And it was, it was the only show that people could watch live as well. Yes. And now, again, that was just like spur of the moment. Do you know what I mean? I was just ready to sit here and probably just do a little recording. And I thought, well, I'll just switch it on. And even that, you know, there's been like a load of people watching, watching that one. So, Phil, on to the next one. Okay, moving on to the favourite interview award. And the nominees are Robert Silverberg, Ray Bradbury, Samuel R. Delaney, Gene Wolfe, China Meerville, Jack Vance, that's by himself, and Fred Pohl with Jack Vance. And the winner, Tony? And the winner is, get this envelope, let's listen to this. Oh, the, the special effects. The winner is Fred Paul and Jack Vance. And, oh, fantastic. Yeah, and you know what? It, that's made my idea that because I'm really quite proud of that one. You know, I'm quite I'm proud of everything. You know, I mean, when I did the Peter Watts interview, you know, when you opened up there, that was an amazing one in China, Mayville as well. But that, you know, there's not often times in your life you could get them two guys together, Fred Paul and Jack Vance. And just let them, you know, I couldn't get a word in edgeways. They were just away. And it was great. I just sat back and just let it go, you know. And what I mentioned on, I think it was last week's show, to try and get that one in the running for like a Hugo Award for best related work, you know, to try and get an interview in there would be amazing. But I'm chuffed to bits with that one. It was just a beautiful fly on the wall interview with, you know, two legends. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, like I say. And it's funny how there is some of them as well. This Robert Silverberg interview was one of the interrogation ones, which is, you know, that totally formatted interview. But that, mm. and it's still got in there, you know, and Samuel Delaney. But like I say, that, that Fred Paul and Jack Vance one was just, totally, like I say, that's a great description of fly in the wall because I hardly could, you know, the old fellas would, wouldn't let us get a word in edgeways. I don't think they could hear <laughs> us <laughs> most of the time. So we go on to the next one, which is Best Art. And we had The Clapping Hands of God by Brian Woods, The Island by Chris Butler, The Ray Gun, A Love Story by S.P. Wilson, 
Bigfoot and the Buddha Vista by Ben Wooten and Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2 by Skeet. And the winner is Phil. Uh, this was this was a very difficult category to try and try and choose someone to vote for because they're all so good. However, the uh, Starship Sofa listeners have spoken and the winner is Skeet with his Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2 cover, Go which on. was fantastic. Yes, you, you know... And it's again, it's funny. I'm sure when we first kicked it off, Phil, when you first kicked it off, Bigfoot in the Buddha Vista for about a week yeah. or two was was there. You know when the kind of very close, yes. But then you know it's it's streaked away there, and Skeet has delivered the goods again. Well done, Skeet. Oh, fantastic effort. So next one, Philip, sir. Okay. <laughs> And moving on to favourite uh, fact article contributor. Now, this was another uh, uh, very closely fought battle. The nominees were Morgan Saletta for his Everything segment, David Bradshaw, another new segment in Tau City Radio, Fred Heimbaugh for The Graphic Fan, Rod Barnett for Film Talk, Matthew Sanborn-Smith for Fiction Crawler, JJ Campanella for Science News, and Amy H. Sturgis for her look back at genre history. And the winner, Tony? The winner is... Let's get, let's get this envelope open there. <laughs> the winner is Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. Now, again, you know, this is... It's, I'm sure Amy won last... Did we? I'm sure Amy won last year as well. She might have won the year before as well, but... Yeah, know. it was another closely fought battle between Amy and Jim. Yes, oh, and it, I'm sure it always is. Do you know what I mean? Jim and Amy are, you know, all the time, you know, are so close. But I always wanted to put, you know, David Bradshaw's in and Morgan Saletta's everything, just to give them a... Because, like I say, they haven't been kicking around that long and people who were mm. sending the emails might not be listening to the recent, you know, recent shows. So I thought, stick them in there. But, you know, it, both Amy and Jim have been, you know, doing their segments, actually, I think, since... Since number one, you know, since we're kind of kicked off, we've yeah. been, you know, hovering around there. So, Amy, congratulations. No, a fantastic segment. I really look forward to that one. So, next up is Favourite Narrator. And we have Ray Sizemore, Mike Boris, Matthew Sanborn-Smith, Amy H. Sturgis, Larry Santoro, and Jim Campanella. Some fine narrators in that, that little bunch there. And Phil, the winner. The winner, a very popular choice, Larry Santoro. You know, and when you look at these results, the how many Larry got compared to you know everyone else, it's just it's staggering to be quite honest. You know what I mean? And I don't know, you know, Larry's been kicked around, you know, Larry's been kicked around for a, a long, long time, but. You know, he's been kind of involved with the show for a couple of years there, but he's, you know, he's getting his name mentioned all over the place. But Larry, well done. Yeah, fantastic effort. And I just think, I mean, Larry was greatly helped with the fantastic three-part serial that he had at the start of the of the nomination period, plus all the all the narrations he did. So uh, overall, just a fantastic effort. Yes. So we move on to. The honorary award for the favourite SFF writer. The uh, nominees in this category include Peter Watts, Paolo Bajikalupi, James Morrow, China Mirville, Jack Vance, and Larry Santoro. 
And the winner, Tony? And the winner is... Actually, this is my daughter's, not school report, but it's a, it's a letter Melanie's got to read that I keep ripping. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to go mad. But the winner is, out of all them science fiction writers, the winner is Larry Santoro. Uh, well done, Larry. <laughs> and again, <laughs> you know what I mean? He's just, wow, the, the lead in difference. Well, I'll tell you the results. Larry Santoro got 101 responses. The next one down was Jack Vance with... 41 that's you know that's the kind of impression larry well done that's just amazing you know for for someone that isn't really a science fiction writer to come onto a science fiction show and win the the kind of that spot you know what do you think about that phil do you think it's deserved uh look i think larry's fantastic not only for the contributions he makes to the show but if you hop on the forums larry's always there uh, he's uh, you know in the fact that he he discusses he not only gives us his, his stories, but he also discusses how he how he wrote them. Yeah, no, I think Larry's just uh, just amazing. Yes, and like I'm so pleased there because the one thing is, you know, if our little show, we love him. You know, if we could get Larry Santour under the bigger kind of scene, that would be, you know, that would be just a, a great achievement for Starship Sofa. We could push someone like Larry, who's writing is just first class. Fantastic. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Fantastic. So we get on to the main award, the the big one. And up for this award are The Barons by F. Paul Wilson, Bigfoot and the Buddha Vista, James Morrow, Sublimation Angels by Jason Sanford, Brightsicle by Will McIntosh, the Ray Gun, a love story by James Allen Gardner and you know, Lord Dickens' declaration, Larry Santuru. And Phil, the winner is... Drumroll, Tony. The winner is, can you guess, Lord Dickens' declaration by Larry Santoro. Oh, I, that's just, you know what I mean? Hairs on the back of my neck there. I, I did, I got a little chill there. Larry, well done. That's just, again, going up against, the, you know... Paul F. Wilson, F. Paul Wilson, you know, James Morrow, James Allen Gardner. That, that story of Larry's just, you know, again, it's streaked ahead of everything else. And every one of them, I mean, mm. God, Brightsicle, Will McIntosh, you know, one of my favourite stories I've ever read. It's in there. It won the Hugo last year. Larry's trumped that. Up against very strong competition. But then again, it is the very first story that's been commissioned solely for Starship Sofa, isn't it? Yes, Yes, so that is the 2011 awards. Any thoughts on them, Phil? No, look, I thought they were it was extremely enjoyable doing them because just having to go through the trawl through the lists of of what's been on the show just brought back very many happy memories. I think the winners very deserving, and uh, congratulations to Larry and all our winners this year because I think they've done a fabulous job. And, and I know, and I've actually seen as well, Dee's putting, to get, putting together a certificate there for the win as well. So I will send out certificates in the post from Starship Sofa, the 2011 Sofa Note Awards. And funny enough, Phil, it was you had to tell me which year we were doing. Do you know what I mean? When I first <laughs> I said, Phil, are we, are we, is this the 2010 ones or the 2011? Hey, that's... that's well, I, I was lucky that, I was lucky that Mark was on email because uh, he, uh, Mark Borman, told me which year it was. But well, what I was, I mentioned to Phil as well, what we'll do is we'll get these up on like now, because, you know, there's three years worth now. We'll get them on a page. Josh Hoffey will put the page together, the Sofnote Awards, and then we'll have, because 
Phil used a company or a company called Survey Monkey, which is just it's worked out. You know, it's a great way to do it. And there's a the lovely PDF here. We'll we'll put that online, and you can come and see like the whole votes. You know, where everybody came, and you know, and who came last, and you know, and all those places as well. So, Phil, what can I say? Honestly, the biggest thank you ever. Thank you so much. No, thanks, Tony. It was great. Now, Phil, this, <laughs> on air, this is where this is where you know this is what I'm good at. This is why why I probably won the Hugo Award because I ask for everything. Phil, what about next year? Uh, I'd be more than happy to, Tony. That's honestly, it's it's excellent. And you know what? Quite spooky, Phil. It, it comes round so bloody quick. Do you know what I mean? You, you think that yeah, that's it, another year, but all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of creeping into August and September, and then we've got to hit the, the, the kind of tracks mm. running. But, Phil, I'd love to have you on board. If you're keen to do it again, that would be fantastic. No, thanks, Tony. That would be great. Well, listen, honestly, thank you so much. You take care of yourself, and yeah, please keep in touch, but I'll, if not, I'll see you next year. <laughs> thank you, Tony. Look after yourself. Ta-ra. See ya. So that is the Sofa Note Awards for 2011. Wow, Larry stormed, stormed, stormed the gates and run amok. Wow, well done, honestly, Larry. It just makes me so happy. Well done, sir, and well done to everybody. Skeet, Amy, do you know what I mean? Amazing people. Thank you so much for coming on board. And everyone that kind of, you know, I'm going to say take part, but everyone that was in there, in you know, from the very early stages of the awards, you know, you make the show. Thank you so much. So we have a little interview with Mr. John Joseph Adams. He has a new book out, Brave New Worlds. And come and st- I'll play it straight after. We have a short story from that book. This is the day to join your, the revolution by Genevieve Valentine. And I just want to kind of ask John a few questions. Like I say, at the end of the interview, I ask him some personal questions. The story that you're about to hear after the interview is narrated by our very own Christy Yant. I'm saying very own, you'll find out she's not. <laughs> so we have John Joseph Adams on the, on the line there. John, nice of you to drop on Starship Sofa. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me oh, on. Busy time for you, John. You've got a new anthology out. Tell us about it. Uh, yeah, Brave New Worlds. Uh, it's an anthology of dystopian fiction. Just came out this month in January. Um, you know, it's sort of it's a reprint anthology. It collects the best dystopian stories, uh, you know, I guess of all time or, you know, at least since the 50s. Uh, starts with uh, starts with The Lottery by Shirley Jackson from 1948. And it goes all the way up until stuff uh, just published, uh, you know, last year. And, um, you know, tried to, I, I tried to include like, uh, all the, all the classic stories of the genre that I, that I could think of. And, uh, and also I found a bunch of newer stuff that, uh, you know, I think will be a classic in the future. Um, you know, so it includes stuff by like contemporary authors like Paolo Bacigalupi and, and, you know, uh, Orson Scott Card, Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, you know, and also just like classic stuff like by Kurt Vonnegut and like, you know, Shirley Jackson, Ursula K. Le Guin and all that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it was kind of surprising to me that uh, no one had ever done a an anthology collecting all the best dystopian fiction in one volume. Like, you know, I mean, I, uh, I had recently been doing all these other theme anthologies. Like I started with Wastelands, which was post-apocalyptic. And, and you know, really, there had only been one anthology on that subject uh, that was doing that, you know, collected the best uh, stuff in one volume. And then, um, 
you know, and then so when I was doing other research and, you know, I was thinking about what other genres I might like to tackle, uh, uh, Brave New World was actually the second thing I pitched to Nightshade after Wastelands. And, and then it's just it's only coming out now because, um, you know, uh, when we were talking about what what projects to work on next, it just sort of got delayed because uh, we we're uh, because there were other projects that we thought um, were more timely. Um, and, uh, you know, right now dystopian fiction is pretty hot. So now's a good time for it to be, uh, hitting and, 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 you know, there haven't been really any other anthologies coming out on the subject, uh, ahead of us. So, um, you know, you were talking, yeah, you're talking about doing like research on how do you, yes, because we all kind of know a few stories, but you you need to know a load of stories. So is it just that you know so much of the genre <laughs> or do, do people say, Oh, John, check that story out. Yeah, well, there's a little bit of both. I mean, I, I do know a lot about, you know, certain genres and dystopian fiction is one of my favorites. So, I you know, I knew a lot about it already. Um, but so one of the things I do is I, I sort of target authors. Um, there's like so there's authors who I think of as, um, you know, like I, I'll, I'll think of an author and say, oh, well, you know, I'm pretty sure they have a dystopian story. And so I'll look around in their catalog and see what might fit. Um and uh, but then also I you know for every anthology I've been doing um, I've been uh, after Wastelands uh, I, I I've I've sort of solicited feedback online like when when the project is announced I I just create this uh, like Google Docs has this um, has this way you can create a form and you can just post it on your website and then so people can go in and they can fill out the form and then it'll all put it into a spreadsheet for you um, and so I just, I just I just do one of those and I just try to spread the word and so that people can go in and enter recommendations uh, you know just like if they want to mention their favorite story or or if it's an author they can list their own story you know just because I, I figure um, it, it's the best the best way to do it is to cast as wide a net as possible and I mean I don't mind reading stories that are you know maybe off point or whatever it's like you know just uh, if it can save if it can save me from missing something that I might miss you know it's worth it. Um, and you know, has, has there been some people, like say, mentioned the story and you n- didn't know about it and then went, oh, that is perfect? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if I could come up with any examples off the top of my head, but I mean, if I uh, look through my uh, recommendations database, I'm sure I'd find something there that I, I didn't know about um, before, uh, uh, you know, before going to do the anthology. But um, yeah, I mean, it certainly happened with other projects and um uh, since I started doing it, yeah, I mean, there was definitely uh, things that people pointed out that I would have missed uh, had I not known about them. Although, it, I mean, it's hard to say because uh, because it was pointed out to me, obviously, I didn't have to stumble across it in my researches. So it's hard to say if I would have stumbled across it on my researches if I hadn't done that. But, you know, um, it did save me some time anyway, even if uh, I may have discovered it anyway. But, uh, I mean, I give full credit to everybody who, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, recommends stuff to me. I, I like to thank them in the acknowledgments and whatnot. Um so uh, yeah, I mean, I'm very grateful to anyone who does that, and uh, and and actually, if anybody wants to recommend anything to me now, I'm 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 currently working on a, a, a an anthology, a reprint anthology of Cthulhu fiction. Um, so there's details on my website. Like if you just go to the homepage, there's a a current projects uh, module there that you just you know it lists the, the things that I'm working on that are currently open, and uh, book of, book of Cthulhu is one of them. And uh, so I'm currently actively you know soliciting recommendations for that. Um, were you tempted to get like brand new fiction for it, or was it always your, you know, your, your kind of goal to just to do reprints for this one? For Cthulhu? No, for the your, your new your Brave New World that's out now. 
Oh right, yeah, you know. So yeah, no, it's just it's all you know, it's all reprints. Um, it's actually the first book I've done that doesn't have any originals in it, um, which was actually kind of an accident all along. Um, you know, Wastelands ended up with the original story in it because uh, it was something I had read. Uh, oh no, uh, it was just the author had heard that I was doing the book and he asked if he could send it to me, and, and but he hadn't published it anywhere, you know. And so, um, but it, you know, it, it was the Jerry Eltion story. Um, and so I read it and I really liked it. I thought it did something, you know, different with post-apocalyptic fiction that I hadn't seen before. Um, and so I went ahead and included it. Um, and then with other anthologies, kind of the same thing happened. You know, people heard that I was doing this book, but they didn't have anything on the subject. So they, they you know, they sort of wrote something for me as an original. Um, in, in two cases, it was John Langan in, in, uh, in The Living Dead and uh, Brave, uh, By Blood We Live. Um, and with Brave New World, just nobody, uh, nobody approached me about doing an original uh, story. And, uh, uh, you know, I didn't feel any particular need to include any because, I mean, obviously there's a, a huge, um, you know, a huge history of dystopian fiction that I had to choose from for, uh, you know, to include in the book. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was fine with just uh, including the reprints. But, um, you, still you, know, I mean, if, if, you know, if I could have gotten Suzanne Collins to write me an original story, I mean, I, I probably would have done that. But, uh, you know, she's kind of busy <laughs> uh, being a best-selling <laughs> author. So. Do you still get a kick out of, you know, because you've had a few anthologies out there now, but when the actual book comes to, you know, like you're proofing and you, you see it for the first time, is it still a bit of a kick for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and Brave New Worlds in particular was uh, quite a, you know, quite a kick because, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the physical copy yet, but I mean, it looks beautiful. I mean, the cover is just, I mean, uh, you know, the artist, uh, Cody Tilson, um, and he, he also designed the cover. So it's like the, the cover design and the art really work well together because they're all of a piece. Um, and it's just, it's amazing. I mean, it, and it, it exactly strikes the right tone. I mean, I think you see the book, even if you don't know what dystopian fiction is, uh, which apparently a lot of people don't, um, you know, and I don't, I don't just mean people misunderstanding what it is and, and lumping it in with post-apocalyptic fiction, which is, you know, different. Uh, I just mean like people see the word and they just have no idea what it means. Um, but uh, even if you don't know what it means, I think if you see the cover, you'll get a good idea. You know, you'll have a good idea of what the book actually is. And then, of course, if you read the cover copy, you'll understand. But, um, I mean, it's it's important to, that the cover actually does communicate some of that. And I think it does that really well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just – it's beautiful and, and it's uh, – um, you know, it's 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 a different format than uh, my other Nightshade books. You know, it doesn't have – like all the previous Nightshade books sort of had, uh, uh, you know – the top half of the cover had a, had a square image and then below it, it just had names. But then this one's like a full cover image and, it, and they just mix the names into the, the, the design sort of mixes the names into the image. So, um, uh, yeah, it was really nice. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm really, I'm really pleased with it. I think it's, uh, it's definitely one of my best looking books. It has, it has the best looking spine, that's for sure. And that's actually very important. You know, like if you think about the bookstores, you, you know, it's like not every book's going to be faced out, especially in anthology, which, you know, when the bookstore is only going to have maybe, two copies so you know if you have a really beautiful looking spine that certainly helps now we're going to play a story as well from that book today which i'm you know i'm so pleased you're letting us do that tell us a little bit about this story uh yeah so that's uh is this your day to join the revolution by uh, genevieve valentine yes um yeah first appeared in uh futurismic magazine and uh you know genevieve is just one of my favorite uh contemporary authors i mean you know she's uh written a ton of short fiction over the last couple of years and uh uh, I'm just pleased that, you know, I've gotten to publish a, a good, a good number of pieces. Uh, you know, I mean, I first published her in, uh, Federations. Uh, she had a story called, uh, Carthag Carthago Delinda Est. Um, and, uh, you know, that was the first thing I had read by her. I mean, I'd kind of been aware of her. Like I'd seen, I'd seen her nonfiction online because she also writes a lot of nonfiction. She, uh, rants about movies and whatnot. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of hers. And so, I, you know, I was glad to include something by her. Actually, Genevieve and I were just on um, the uh, radio show Hour of the Wolf um, uh, on Wednesday. Uh, so uh, and you can actually listen to that online if you want to hear us blather. But uh, I mean, we're just basically we we, uh, we just basically uh, make fun of Tron Legacy, um, which we just went to. We like. You know the show's on at like one thirty in the morning, so uh, we were hanging out um, prior to the show, and uh, so we went to see Tron Legacy. And so uh, when we got on the show, we just basically uh, made fun of that. <laughs> but, I've never uh, actually, I've never seen it. I don't actually fancy seeing it because like Tron came out, the first Tron came out for me right when I was like that kind of adolescent. You know, like everything was <laughs> like brilliant, and I just don't know. I just don't want to go near that because I'll probably get <laughs> spoiled. You know, it'll probably just spoil all me feelings for the Tron movie. Yeah. Yeah, stay away from it. Uh, I mean, it's uh, well, it just it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's just a mess. It's a mess all over all, all over the place from start to finish. Basically, uh, a lot of terrible acting, uh, a lot of a lot of terrible you know directing choices. It's uh, doesn't you know I don't know. It's really disappointing. I I was gonna avoid seeing it. I mean, I was interested to see it because I saw the trailer and I thought it looked cool. And I was like, oh well, I'd like to see sort of Tron with modern day visuals. But uh, you know, I I all I. At first, all I had heard was these terrible, terrible reviews. Like, I mean, like, terrible as in, like, you know, this is one of the worst movies ever sort of reviews. And, um, but then I saw some, some more positive reviews. And I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe, I, maybe I'll give it a shot, you know? Because um, my family was talking about going to see it on Christmas. And, and so I was like, oh, well, okay, I guess I could, you know, I guess I could go with that. Uh, and we didn't end up going to see it. But then, um, yeah, no. So the the first the first bunch of reviews that I heard, uh, they were definitely more on point. It's it's terrible. <laughs> what a shame! You could you probably see it coming, to be quite honest. But never mind. Now, yeah. the story that we're going to play is narrated by Christy Yant. Now, John, <laughs> <laughs> no, I did know, but I, I haven't known for that long. You and Christy <laughs> are a bit of an item, not right? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. We're uh, we're in love, as they say. Oh, no, that's that's just excellent. That and you're doing the the big because I'm a writing thing, and you're based in New York. Uh, well, New Jersey, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, close enough to New Jer- New York, but yeah, New Jersey. And Christie's based. Yeah, in, in California, on the on the coast of California, Central Coast. So, yeah, I'm I'm in the process of moving out there now. I'm actually moving on Monday. So, uh, you know, I'm moving or my stuff's moving on Monday. I'm flying out on Tuesday, and then uh, this year, this show is going to air on Wednesday. So, um, you know, I'll be a California resident when this airs. So, I mean, that must have been actually it must be pretty hard for you to have a relationship that distance apart from each other. You know, it must just be conventions really that you get to see each other. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we've been, I mean, we've been going to visit each other otherwise, uh, as well. But, uh, you know, I mean, because I, I can, because I work from home, you know, fully, like, you know, cause I'm between the editing and doing publicity and stuff, I can do that. I do that all from home. So, I mean, I've, I've been able to go out and visit Christy for like a month at a time or three weeks at a time. And, 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 uh, and you know, I can still do work from there. Um, so that's made it a lot easier. And she also works from home. So she was able to come and visit for like a week at a time or so. Um, a couple times, but uh, actually, uh, her her sister is dating someone from your neck of the woods in Scotland. And All so, right, uh, so that's that's much harder for them. So we 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 can't really complain that much because they've got a whole uh, you know whole ocean between them, and there's immigration issues and whatever for him trying to move out here. So um, yeah, I mean we we uh, we figure we're lucky. We have the three thousand miles separating us, but um, you know at least it's in the same country, and uh, at least we have the flexibility of of going to visit each other pretty often. So, but. We uh, we're not gonna have to do that anymore because we're gonna be living in the same house. So. Oh, that's honestly fantastic! And like, say, Christy is just an amazing narrator, and you know the two of you together, what a what a team! 
brilliant <laughs> stuff, yeah. honestly. Congratulations and, you know, all the luck to the future, sir. Thank you. Well, John, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's been lovely. And so what's Brave New Worlds out there now? And you're saying you actually, is there any that have kind of complete and ready to come out? Or are you working on new stuff now? So there's nothing going to be for the next, say, six months a year? Okay, yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh, the next thing that's going to come out is probably going to be the Lightspeed Anthology. Uh, you know, because Lightspeed, uh, we're collecting all the fiction and, and then we're going to publish it in one volume, um, you know, in an anthology. Uh, that'll probably be out next. Uh, I'm not sure when exactly, uh, maybe like August or something like that. But, um, and then, and then the next book would be, uh, the book of Cthulhu, which is coming out in September. Um, although I'm actually, you know, I'm still working on that, but I mean, the, you know, the, the sort of turnaround time for publishing uh, an anthology like that is, is, is fairly short. So we have, uh, you know, uh, we don't need that much lead time to, you know, once it's done to get it out and publish it. Um, and then otherwise I'm working on a few other things. I, I don't know if you saw on io9, um, the other day we, uh, they announced, uh, uh, you know, Publishers Marketplace. We just announced that I sold this anthology to Bayon called, uh, Armored, um, which is, uh, all about powered armor and, uh, mecha and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, so yeah, io9 has a, has a little interview with me about the, about that. And, uh, and actually it was like hugely, hugely popular that post. Like I, I mean, I, I was actually kind of baffled. Like I, Never would have thought an anthology announcement of any kind would generate that sort of, you know, attention. I mean, it had like more than a hundred comments and fifteen thousand hits, and it's like, wow, really? I mean, I, I was excited about it. I mean, I, it's sort of the anthology I've been waiting my whole career to do, um, you know, cause just because I mean, I, I sort of fixated on that whole powered armor thing, uh, you know, at a young age, and um, you know, largely in part due to um, the book Armor by John Stakely, and also Starship Troopers later. But I mean, Armor I read first, so. Um, you know, it's, re- it's it's really getting the, the the perfect title, and you know these kind of one word. It just it sums it up, you know, and so people can <laughs> know exactly what they're getting into, and that's that's a, a gift you've got, John. That's amazing. Oh, thanks. Well, listen, you take good care. Look after Christy. Yeah, <laughs> will do. She's a fantastic narrator and a lovely person. So, honestly, have a great time and have a great new year. All right, great. Thanks, you too. You look after yourself. Is this your day to join the revolution? By Genevieve Valentine. When Liz left her building, disease control workers were standing on the corners, handing out pills and little paper cups of Coke. Do you need one? The old lady asked, holding up a handful of paper masks, stamped with ads for lavender field sterile milled soap. Liz pulled out the one she kept in her bag, and the lady smiled. The TV in her subway car showed what you can do on a date. The young man and woman went to the fair twice, once where he screwed everything up, and again where he helped her into the Ferris wheel and handed her a paper mask before he put on his own. The movie closed with swelling music and a reminder in cursive, Are you due for a date? Check with your doctor. Liz worked the reception desk on the sixth floor of the Department of Information Affairs. That Greg's a lucky man, said Mr. Randall, the district manager, when he came in every morning. Too bad I didn't get matched with you first. Liz chuckled, because a district manager's jokes were always funny. Above her, on a loop, the introduction video played for anyone coming into the department. It showed a woman on the street overhearing pieces of information she didn't know how to report. It reviewed the details of filing a claim as a man in a mechanic's jumpsuit signed in at the front desk, took the elevator to the 18th floor, 
shook hands with a smiling agent. "'What do you know that we should know?' the narrator asked at the end, right before the two actors turned to the camera, and the man in the jumpsuit said, "'More than I thought, that's for sure.' Liz couldn't see it from where she was sitting, but she didn't need to. She'd seen the film during orientation— the last time anyone at the department suggested she had anything anyone needed to know. Greg waited outside her building for their scheduled date, and when he saw her coming, he smiled. Greg had been studying for a job at disease control before the bang. His viable sperm knocked him out of line for any Sector C jobs. He answered phones at a law office. They had been matched three years ago and had been evaluated above-average sweethearts three years running by the Society Council. Their chances of marriage had been rated by the doctors as close to 80%. Greg was gay as a maypole, but they made do. When she was just far enough away, she called, Hello, darling. You never knew when the society council was monitoring. He smiled. Hello, honey, how was your day? Some concern over disease, I think. Someone from film production signed in this morning. They might be making a new film about how the disease is going. Greg whistled. That's no good. She shook her head. I just don't understand the delay. We've been wearing the masks for weeks already. They should have delivered a new movie by now. They should have, Greg said, frowning. Liz patted her boyfriend's arm and dropped the subject. Every once in a while, the government wasn't above a little mistake. They hit up the shindig at the three-screen. The tagline had caused a little scandal. Vance and Murray spark more fireworks than the bang, but it was just a romantic musical. Liz liked the dancing. Greg liked Joe Murray. The cashier stamped their tickets. Please don't forget to have them stamped on the way out or the purchase is ineligible for reimbursement from the Department of Society, he droned. Once they were in their seats, Greg put his arm around her like all the other guys had done to their dates. You never knew who was a society council inspector. Is there a plan for after this? Well, if you really enjoy Joe Murray, we can go to a society hotel if you want after... He looked over, understanding. Do for the doctor? She smiled thinly. We have a year left before they rematch me. She thought about Mr. Randall finding out and filing a request, and shuddered. I'd rather stick it out with you. Greg nodded, and when the movie titles came up, he held her hand. Murray and Vane were in the middle of their meet-cute dance routine when the film stuttered, pixelated, and blinked out. Refund, someone shouted before the screen was even black. The screen flared back to life with the title, You Are Being Lied To. So, no refund? asked Greg. The people near them laughed. The screen cards kept flashing. There are no pathogens. There is no disease control. There is no disease. Now no one was laughing. Someone got up and ran out of the theater. Liz craned her neck, trying to see what was happening in the projection booth. The screen cut to a grainy shot of a computer screen, a shadowy figure sat beside it, typing and talking to the camera. "'We are John Doe,' it said. Its voice had been distorted, like film played at half speed. "'And we have tuned the network. We have proof the disease is a lie.' Now people were beginning to murmur. Someone got up and scurried for the exit like it was a security department trap. It probably was. Liz hoped this kid was lying." She thought, annoyed about the stupid paper masks she wore three days a week when the pathogen alert was high. The computer screen showed a mail exchange with the header, Damage Control to Intercept Information Leak. Every citizen must act, the voice was saying. Don't take the pills from disease control. 
By now the figure was agitated, gesturing at the camera. Ask yourselves, who's ever really gotten sick? How can the Bang's pathogens strike such small areas? Why are they always near the borders? How does disease control respond so quickly? The pills have kept us docile, but the time has come to act. We've made contact with... The doors behind them crashed open. The doorway filled with plainclothes SD and uniformed cops. Guns out. Hold it, someone shouted, and the police charged the projector booth. A young man jumped out of the booth and crash-landed in the aisle, grabbing Greg's seat to pull him up. The boy was young, blonde, his face tight with pain or fear, and for a moment he was just staring at them, his hands flexed on Greg's armrest. Then he sprinted for the exit and disappeared. The cops and SDs tripped over themselves back down the projection room stairs and they scattered, some for the exits, some for the audience. Greg and Liz were yanked out of their seats and dragged outside into a holding pen of cop cars along with the rest of the audience. Liz saw a few of the ones who had tried to run and hadn't made it. I don't want to go into the station, Greg told her. It could end up on my record. He still hoped that someday he could get closer, any closer, to disease control. Liz faked a storm of tears when the cops were close enough to see it, and they handed Greg a printout and stamped his ticket stubs and told him to be a gentleman and take her home already. I'm looking for a refund for this prank, Greg told them half seriously. I want you to know that. On the walk home, Greg read from the printout, a standard-issue distribution without a date on it. They'd had it ready to go, just in case. Greg flashed the picture of a frowning boy dragging a skull-emblazoned bag behind him. Pranks are foolish and waste the time of valuable citizens. They distract from safety work and interfere with your government. If you see a prankster, contact your local precinct. The bottom read in large block letters, Today's delinquent is tomorrow's criminal. Hold it, said the blonde kid from behind her, and Liz felt the point of a knife in her back. Or today's criminal, Liz said. Greg leveled a look at the kid. Keep it cool, Johnny Doe. What do you want? Your car. Don't have one. Johnny pulled a face. Shit. Well, give me your money, he said, and nudged Liz with his shoulder. Not, she noted, with the knife. What, you're going to buy a bus pass and ride out of town on the local? Liz asked, but she handed over her purse. Seventeen dollars. Enjoy. Johnny thumbed through the wallet with his free hand. They've got my car, he told them like they were all friends. I need to get out of here. They'll kill me. Liz didn't doubt that. Greg glanced around at the quiet street. Ahead of them was the main drag, swarming with people going out to the city fair on subsidized dates. "'You should go,' said Johnny. "'You'll be in trouble if they see you with me.' Greg looked like he was in the middle of a magnificent adventure and was sneaking looks at Johnny's sharp profile when he thought Johnny wasn't looking, and Liz knew what was coming before Greg even opened his mouth. Greg asked, "'What do you need?' Liz and Greg signed into a society hotel just off the main drag. The concierge registered them, stamped their paper, and smiled politely. No speeches about exit stamps this time. It was gauche for concierges to keep track of that sort of thing. They closed the door and looked at one another like it was their first date again. Liz felt an itch just under her skin, like she was sick, like she needed to run until she dropped. She felt like Greg looked. Greg laid his tie over the chair and looked at her. What if they trace him to my apartment? What if they find him there? Liz figured if they found a good-looking young man in Greg's apartment, he'd be in trouble for a lot more than harboring a fugitive. Come on, said Liz, tugging gently at the tongue of his belt. We have work to do. 
Just close your eyes and think of Johnny. At the door of the hotel, Greg kissed her cheek goodnight. He seemed surprised when she fell into step beside him instead of turning for her street, but he took her arm without hesitation. Just curious to see what he does in civilization, she said when she felt him looking at her. Besides, I'm your alibi if anyone's found him. God, that's the truth, he said, and pressed her hand more tightly into the crook of his arm. John Doe was gone, having availed himself of Greg's good raincoat and a bottle of milk from the refrigerator, and Greg's sadness at the end of their adventure was mitigated by the fact that he'd have to replace a very pricey coat. Liz figured that wasn't the last of Johnny Doe, though when Greg wistfully asked her, do you think he might ever, she said, nope, just to keep him from getting tied up in knots about it. Secretly, she guessed that a rebel wouldn't abandon a safe harbor, but that was really only from the films. Is your neighbor a traitor? And she couldn't be sure, now. Sometimes, when they were at the movies and the screen skipped a frame, Greg tensed, and Liz dreaded the day Johnny ever came back and swept Greg off his feet and into some mission, living in a ghost town smack in the middle of the pathogen fields. Liz would have to go on the group dates in the society center where they observed you behind the mirror and marked your body language and assigned you someone— and Liz would have to learn to live with someone entirely new. Above her head, the woman in the video was shopping for groceries. A man behind her said to someone, "'We'll have to hurry. The pickup happens tonight.' And the woman frowned at an apple. The narrator said, "'Mary knows something's not quite right, but what can she do?' "'She can do what we all should do. Report suspicions. Today's alert citizen is tomorrow's hero.' On the screen behind her, the man in the jumpsuit opened the lobby door and approached the desk to make his complaint. He never actually made it, Liz knew. He just went up in the elevator and shook hands with the other actor, every ten minutes, all day. "'It's easy to be a good citizen,' the narrator said. "'We need what you know.'" John Doe was standing at the corner of her street, dressed like a disease control agent, when she saw him next. When he saw her, he went white as a sheet. Then he fumbled for the tray, handed her a cup. "'What's in here?' she asked under her breath. "'You poisoning us now?' He rolled his eyes. "'It's the same as the rest,' he said. "'I'm just waiting here to be taken back to disease control.' So he was going to sneak in that way. "'Is it true you work for the DOI?' She blinked as his question settled in. Then she shook her head. "'Oh no, Johnny, don't.' "'How can you say no?' He handed off a paper cup to a passerby, turned back to her. This close, she could see the vein of green in his blue eyes. "'You're not stupid,' he said. "'You know I'm telling the truth. Won't you help me?' "'What are you going to do?' "'I'm getting into disease control,' he said. "'I'm getting proof that this is all just to keep us in line, and I'm going to air it across the country. People are going to have a nasty wake-up.' She wondered how he planned to organize the nation full of people he was going to wake up. I can't help you, she said. I know where you work, he said, pleading. You can help me get the message out. All you have to do is let me in. I'll go upstairs on my own. I can get the message out from there. She took a step back. I can't, she said. It's too dangerous. No one will know it was you. That much she knew for sure, she said. Someone will. How can you be such a coward? He was louder now, too loud. The other disease control agent looked concerned and Liz took a step back as Johnny stepped forward. His eyes were sharp and bright. Don't you see what they've done to you? Leave me alone, she said. She wished Greg or someone was here just in case. 
He dropped the tray with a clang. Paper cups and pills skittered across the pavement, bounced off Liz's shoes. It's over, he said. They'll kill me if you don't help me. You've killed me. Liz couldn't breathe. She felt dizzy. She didn't understand what he meant. The next moment she was on the ground, being handcuffed, and Johnny was being picked up, five cops, maybe more, and carried, kicking, into the back of a van that had appeared out of nowhere. As the two policemen walked Liz to the car, they passed the van, blaring the last swells of a familiar tune through its speakers. "'Are you due for a date?' called the announcer. "'Check with your doctor.' Mr. Randall was waiting for her on the 18th floor of the department. She waited. She tried to think how many people who came up to report something to the department had ever come down again. "'We'd like to congratulate you,' said Mr. Randall. Liz blinked. "'Pardon?' "'Your John Doe was part of a series of test runs we did around the city to gauge the audience for a new instructional film. Marketing has been working with us for months.' Relief flooded her. "'Oh, I see,' she said." Our field man did his damnedest, but I told him. I said, that girl has her head on straight. You won't get her to help you. He tried twice, the theater and the street, but did Elizabeth fold? He laughed. I told him he'd have as much luck getting help from me as from you. She thought about giving Johnny her keys to Greg's place, telling him the fastest way to get there, taking Greg's arm to go for an alibi date. No one had told Randall about that. This was no undercover job then. Johnny Doe had died and taken that secret with him. "'Thank you, sir,' she said. When she got back to her desk, she called Greg. "'Want to get married?' He only hesitated a moment. "'I thought you'd never ask,' he said, a little too brightly, but only just. "'I'll pick you up tonight and we'll go to City Hall and your doctor.' She wanted to tell Greg what had happened, how she had been too afraid to help Johnny, and what must have happened to him by now. See you soon, she said, hung up as he was saying, Goodbye, darling. Above her, the film was ending, the department actor grinning through the last frames of twinkling music. What do you know that we should know? There you go, John Christie. You know, congratulations, you two. Look after each other. And John, thank you so much for letting Starship Silver play that story. There's a link on to, if John, John mentioned actually in the show that he did an interview with Genevieve on the Hour of the Wolf. I'll put that link there down there and the anthology Brave New World. You can go over there or pop over to John's site as well. All links are on the page. Next up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis looking back at genre history. Ames! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. As many of you know, I spend a lot of my time professionally, as well as personally, involved with fantasy and science fiction, writing about it, teaching it at the university level, and speaking about it. But what some of you might not know is that my other field, on which I publish and speak and teach, is Native American Studies. For example, I've written an intellectual history of the Trail of Tears, the forced removal of the Cherokee Nation in 1838 and 1839. I've also published a biography of Tecumseh, the great Shawnee leader who led the largest pan-tribal confederacy in North American history. 
I've written various other articles and chapters and such,、uh, but in 2009, I had the great privilege of co-editing a book called "The Intersection of Fantasy and Native America: From H.P. Lovecraft to Leslie Marmon Silko." So this is also a field that really has my heart, and I wanted to kick off the new year by talking about one of the areas in which my two loves intersect. In short, I'd like to discuss some of the great Native authors who have contributed in a significant way to speculative fiction. I couldn't hold myself to five authors, but I don't have enough time to give you a full top ten, so I'm going to be satisfied with giving you seven authors to consider and explore. Now, I should say, as an introductory word here, that there are a number of great. Native American authors, and I know best those who are members of Native nations that currently exist within the boundaries of the United States and Canada. And my remarks will be limited to those. But even so, I can't begin to deal with the tip of the iceberg of the authors I would recommend. So I am not making any claims that the list I'm going to be giving you is complete in any. Former fashion, I would just like to hit some of the highlights and provide an introduction or a whirlwind tour of some of the great Native American contributions to speculative fiction. And so, with that, let me dive in. The first two authors I'd like to discuss are two of the most important American Indian authors of the 20th and 21st century. The first is the Standing Rock Sioux author Vine Deloria Jr., who is better known as an author of nonfiction than of fiction. He was born in 1933 and died in 2005, revered as a theologian, a historian, a scholar, and an activist. During his life, he was the elected executive director of the National Congress of American Indians. And while a professor at the University of Arizona, he established the first master's degree program in American Indian Studies in the United States. I could probably use up all of my time today just discussing his awards and recognitions. He was a board member of the National Museum of the American Indian. He received the Wordcraft Circle Writer of the Year award. He won the Wallace Stegner Award from the Center of the American West. He also received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Native Writers Circle of the Americas. He is best remembered for his books such as "Custer Died for Your Sins," an Indian manifesto, in 1969, which became one of the key texts of the American Indian movement. "Behind the Trail of Broken Treaties," an Indian Declaration of Independence, in 1974. American Indian Policy in the 20th Century in 1985, and God is Red: A Native View of Religion in 1994. What a lot of people don't realize is that this influential intellectual and political and religious leader also wrote a work of alternate history. In 1976, in the magazine Christian Century, Vindeloria Jr. wrote. Why the U.S. never fought the Indians. This is a very thought-provoking story that's all the more poignant because it sticks very close to the facts. The story imagines the possible peaceful future that might have occurred 
had Tecumseh not died during the War of 1812. Instead, Deloria imagines a world in which Tecumseh had lived and united all of Native America into something called the Coalition of Indian Nations, which in turn opposed both Great Britain and the United States in the War of 1812. And this Coalition of Indian Nations becomes a power broker at the peace negotiations in Ghent. In other words, the end of the War of 1812 wouldn't mean that Native America was divided up among the victors. It would mean that Native America had a voice in the proceedings and thus a voice in the way that North America would develop from there on out. And this, Deloria suggests, would have meant a partnership no forced removals, none of the so-called Indian wars, and no need for the 20th century's protests and struggles on behalf of the cause of American Indian sovereignty and self-determination. Since Deloria spent most of the rest of his time talking about these issues, it really goes to show how effective a work of alternate history can be in underscoring how certain problems came to be, how they might have been avoided, and how understanding the roots of them in the past might in turn suggest solutions for them in the future. The next author I'd like to discuss is one of the great luminaries of contemporary American Indian fiction, along with authors like N. Scott Momaday, Leslie Marmon Silko, and Louise Erdrich. He has gained new visibility for and led a new renaissance in Native American literature. I'm talking about the Spokane Cordelaine author Sherman Alexie. Born in 1966, Alexie is probably best known for his novels The Lone Ranger and Tonto, Fist Fight in Heaven, from 1994, which became the inspiration for the film Smoke Signals, and The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian from 2007, which went on to win the National Book Award. In 2010, he received the Native Writers Circle of the Americas Lifetime Achievement Award. Alexei has flirted with speculative fiction several times, particularly in his poetry, but I'd particularly like to point out his 2007 novel, Flight. Flight is the story of a misunderstood, troubled, teenaged American Indian boy who calls himself Zitz and describes himself as a time-traveling mass murderer. The book opens with Zitz about ready to open fire on a bank that he is robbing. And from there, it goes into a series of time-traveling episodes, depending on how you look at it and how you interpret what's being described. It might be considered fantasy or science fiction. The interesting thing is that Zitz is moved from one body to another in different time periods. All the time periods have in common the fact that they are violent and they are, in one way or another, sort of turning points in the relationships between peoples. He becomes a white FBI agent during the period of the American Indian Movement and Native American activism, the Red Power Movement and such, in the 1970s. He becomes a small Indian boy at the camp of Little Bighorn right before Custer's attack. He becomes an old man who is an Indian tracker with the army who tracks down American Indians for others to kill. 
he becomes a pilot who taught another pilot how to fly, and that other pilot then crashed a plane in an act of terrorism. And last, he becomes his own father, a homeless American Indian on the streets of Seattle, Washington, in the United States. It's a beautiful morality tale when taken as a whole, and a very effective use of the time travel motif in order to tell a tale with immediate relevance to the reader today. So that's Vine Deloria Jr. and Sherman Alexi. Moving on, I'd like to go to another well-known Native author who has made a significant contribution to speculative fiction, and that is Anishinaabe writer Gerald Robert Visner. Visner was born in 1934, and he's one of the most prolific Native authors. Actually, he has over 30 books to his credit. He was the director of Native American Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and is currently the professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico. He's published nonfiction works of scholarship and criticism, as well as poetry, short stories, plays, translations of traditional Native stories, screenplays, and mini novels. The one that I would like to focus on. Is what I believe to be the very first work of dystopian science fiction by an American Indian author. It was called First Darkness in St. Louis Bearheart in 1978, but it was later revised in 1990 as the novel Bearheart: The Airship Chronicles. And just to be clear, because this is audio, that's air as in H E I R, not A I R. Bearheart tells the story of a collapsed United States, which has undergone a kind of environmental apocalypse brought on specifically by mainstream Americans' demand for oil. The story follows a group of Native American pilgrims, really, as they go through this dystopian landscape of what used to be the United States. What makes this book particularly interesting is that it's told, in some senses, in a very postmodern way, and in other senses, a deeply traditional Anishinaabe way. Visner's work is intentionally surreal, probably not like many other novels you've read, and at its heart is the critique of what he calls terminal creeds. That is ideas that will ultimately bring destruction, because they are belief systems that are inflexible, incapable of change. So, as you can tell, this is a novel that isn't afraid to grapple with big ideas. Visner is the recipient of the American Book Award, the Pen Excellence Award, the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Native Writers Circle of the Americas. And the Distinguished Achievement Award from the Western Literature Association, among others. Next, I'd like to talk about Drew Hayden Taylor, an Ojibwe author from Canada, who is known for his journalism and his plays, as well as his novels. Currently, the writer in residence at the University of Western Ontario, Taylor has served as the artistic director of Native Earth Performing Arts, and he's taught at the Center for Indigenous Theatre. 
For our purposes, I'd like to particularly point out the 2007 book *The Night Wanderer*, a native Gothic novel. Like Sherman Alexie's *Flight*, this is a young adult novel. In this case, it focuses on a 16-year-old Anishinaabe girl who lives on the Otter Lake Reserve in current-day Ontario, and a second character, also of Anishinaabe ancestry. Who arrives mysteriously from Europe, named Pierre Laurent, who it turns out is a vampire, a very, very old vampire, who remembers the area that is now the Otter Lake Reserve in the days before white settlement. Their stories become intertwined when he rents a room at the young girl's home. Her story is just beginning, but his is coming to a close as he has come. Back to his homeland in order to end his existence as a vampire, because he has the memory of the Anishinaabe before they were on the reserve,、uh, before Canada, for that matter. His voice is a very interesting complement to hers as she deals with universal teenage situations, as well as issues that are specific to race and ethnicity. It's a dark, haunting, and really beautiful novel, and it certainly lives up to its name as a native Gothic novel. The book's won a number of prizes, including the Book of the Year for 2008, as well as the Best Books for Kids and Teens from the Canadian Children's Book Center, and was nominated for a number of others, including the Rand McNally Aboriginal Book of the Year and Children's Book of the Year. And the British Columbia Teen Readers' Choice Award. So that was Gerald Visner and Drew Hayden Taylor. Next, I'd like to talk about two authors who have written specific speculative fiction series. The first is Daniel Heath Justice, who is associate professor of Aboriginal literatures in the Department of English and affiliate faculty member of the Aboriginal Studies program at the University of Toronto. This Cherokee author has written both nonfiction and fiction. He's perhaps best known for his 2006 work of scholarship, "Our Fires Survive the Storm: A Cherokee Literary History." But I'd particularly like to point out that he's also the author of an Indigenous fantasy trilogy. The trilogy is called "The Way of Thorn and Thunder," and it's made up of the novel "Kinship" from 2005, "Werewood" from 2006, and "Dread." 2007. This trilogy is saturated in Cherokee thought and particularly critical of colonialism, but it is also accessible to non-native readers. Drew Hayden Taylor, the author I mentioned just previous to this, has written. Quote, Within these pages, Daniel Heath Justice has created a world as complex and detailed as any we live in. It should be no surprise to find this book sandwiched between Stephen Donaldson and J.R.R. Tolkien, and I'm not just talking alphabetically. So we're definitely talking epic fantasy literature here, with a side order of Native American philosophy. By telling the story of the kin, a separate race from humans. And their first contact with and resulting interaction with humanity, which is both destructive and tragic, justice in a way provides an allegory for the interactions between Native Americans and Europeans, and ultimately retells the story of the Trail of Tears. 
It's possible that you've never heard of Daniel Heath Justice before, but that may not be the case with the next author, Cynthia Lydic-Smith. This Muskogee Creek author is a faculty member at the Vermont College of Fine Arts, teaching in the Writing for Children and Young Adults MFA program. She's also a New York Times best-selling author. She's written a number of works for children and teens, including some great Native American literature, such as Rain Is Not My Indian Name from 2001 and Indian Shoes in 2002. She is well and truly famous, however, for her young adult gothic dark fantasy novels, including Tantalize from 2007, Eternal from 2009, and Blessed forthcoming in 2011. Tantalize is also scheduled to become a graphic novel in the near future. Smith explains that her novels, which include vampires, werewolves, and shapeshifters, are inspired by both old-school Gothic novels and also her Southwestern Native American roots. And she has a very specific reason for targeting her novels to a young adult audience. In her words, and I quote, To me, being a teenager seemed a lot like being a monster, a shapeshifter with my changing body, a vampire tasting the forbidden, sometimes wanting to fit into a pack, and sometimes wanting to escape it, overwhelmed by a hormonal rage, fearful of what might happen next. Adolescence and gothic fantasy, they're both explorations of our fears and desires, of the horror and heaven of opening oneself to new, redefining possibilities. They're both about deciding when to walk a line and when to cross it, sometimes with life-altering, even fatal consequences. And so now we've covered the series by Cynthia Lydic-Smith and Daniel Heath Justice. That leaves us only one more Native American author of speculative fiction that I'd like to talk to you about today. And I have saved a true giant for last. I'm talking about the Cherokee science fiction author William Sanders, who was born in 1942, has been nominated for both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards, and twice has won the Sidewise Award for Alternate History, first in 1997 for his story The Undiscovered, and second in 2002 for his story Empire. Sanders has published several novels of speculative fiction, including The Ballad of Bill Badass and The Rose of Turkestan in 1999, and Jay in 2001. He was also the editor and publisher of the online quarterly magazine Helix SF from 2006 until 2008. But his great contribution to the genre has to be his short stories. Sanders is wry, insightful, bleak, cynical, and cleverly funny. He takes his subject matter very seriously and does not take himself seriously at all. The 2008 collection, East of the Sun and West of Fort Smith, brings together almost all of his stories, certainly his major stories, including works that were first published in Asimov's Fantasy and Science Fiction, and collections edited by Harry Turtledove, Martin Greenberg, and Roger Zelazny, among others. Standouts in the volume include what I would say is his greatest work, the tragic The Undiscovered, 
which is an alternate history in which Shakespeare finds himself in North America and produces his play Hamlet for a Cherokee village. It also includes the story that he thinks is his best work, Dry Bones, in which several varieties of human pettiness cost the world a revelation about the archaeological discovery of a fossilized skeleton of a possible time traveler. Other standouts are Sitka, an alternate history in which World War I begins thanks to the joint efforts of Vladimir Lenin and Jack London, and Elvis Bearpaw's Luck, which is a post-apocalyptic tale of the survival and evolution of a certain popular and maybe sacred game. My list could go on and on. Many, though not all, of his stories include American Indian protagonists. All of them are infused with the Cherokee worldview and his own unique brand of dark humor. I highly recommend reading his work, as well as the work the other authors I've mentioned today. And so today we have discussed Vine Deloria Jr., Sherman Alexie, Drew Hayden Taylor, Gerald Visner, Daniel Heath Justice, Cynthia Lydic-Smith, and William Sanders, all Native American authors who have made specific contributions to speculative fiction. I hope you've enjoyed this whirlwind tour, and I look forward very soon to talking to you again as we look back into genre history. Amy, thank you so much. You are a star. So next up, we're starting our first part of part one of three of a serial by Kim Stanley Robinson, entitled Escape from Kathmandu. This story came from The Best of Kim Stanley Robinson, edited by Jonathan Strahan. It's over there at Nightshade Books. It's a great, you know, a great collection of Kim Stanley Robinson's work. I'll give you like a little heads up what some of the stories that are in there that Jonathan's picked. He's got in there Venice Drowned, Before I Wake, Black Air, The Lucky Strike, Our Town, this one Escape from Kathmandu, The Translator, and there's a little afterword as well by Kim Stanley Robinson. So this is a fantastic, great story. It is narrated by Josh Roseman. Josh was actually the one who narrated The Sublimation Angels by Jason Sanford. Josh's bio is quite good. Josh Roseman, not the trombonist, the other one, lives in Georgia, the state, not the country. His fiction has appeared in Big Pulp and it's on the June Steve and Drabblecast. And his first professional, according to the Science Fiction Writers of America, publication is under contract. Good day. Josh, well done, sir. There's a link on to Josh's site if you want to just say hello to him. He's a fantastic, great narrator. I'm glad I've stumbled over him. More work coming from Josh as well in the future. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights. Oh, you see? Gonna be a while. It's gonna be a while. It's very proud to present Escape from Katmandu by Kim Stanley Robinson. One. Usually I'm not much interested in other people's mail. I mean, when you get right down to it, even my own mail doesn't do that much for me. Most of it's junk mail or bills, and even the real stuff is, like, official news from my sister-in-law, Xeroxed for the whole clan, or, at best, an occasional letter from a climbing buddy that reads like a submission to the Alpine Journal for the Illiterate. Taking the trouble to read some stranger's version of this kind of stuff? You must be kidding. 
But there was something about the dead male at the Hotel Star in Kathmandu that drew me. Several times each day I would escape the dust and noise of Alice's second city, cross the sunny-paved courtyard of the Star, enter the lobby, and get my key from one of the zoned-out Hindu clerks, nice guys all, and turn up the uneven stairs to go to my room. And there, at the bottom of the stairs, was a big wooden letter rack nailed to the wall, absolutely stuffed with mail. There must have been 200 letters and postcards stuck up there. Thick packets, blue airmail packages, dog-eared postcards from Thailand or Peru, ordinary envelopes covered with complex addresses and purple postal marks, all of them bent over the wooden retainer bars of the rack, all of them gray with dust. Above the rack, a cloth print of Ganesh stared down with his sad elephant gaze, as if he represented all the correspondents who had mailed these letters, whose messages were never going to reach their destinations. It was dead mail at its deadest. And after a while, it got to me. I became curious. Ten times a day I passed this sad sight, which never changed. No letters taken away, no new ones added. Such a lot of wasted effort. Once upon a time, these names had taken off for Nepal, a long way away, no matter where they were from. And back home, some relative or friend or lover had taken the time to sit down and write a letter, which to me is like dropping a brick on your foot as far as entertainment is concerned. Heroic, really. Dear George Fredericks, they cried, where are you? How are you? Your sister-in-law had her baby, and I'm going back to school. When will you be home? Signed, faithful friend, thinking of you. But George had left for the Himal, or had checked into another hotel, and never been to the Star, or was already off to Thailand, Peru, you name it, and the heartfelt effort to reach him was wasted. One day I came into the hotel a little wasted myself, and noticed this letter to George Fredericks, just glancing through them all, you know, out of curiosity. My name is George also, George Ferguson, and this letter to George was the thickest letter-sized envelope there, all dusty and bent permanently across the middle. George Fredericks, Hotel Star, Tamil Neighborhood, Kathmandu, Nepal. It had a trio of Nepali stamps on it, the king, Cho'oyo, the king again, and the postmark date was illegible, as always. Slowly, reluctantly, I shoved the letter back into the rack. I tried to satisfy my curiosity by reading a postcard from Koh Samui. Hello, do you remember me? I had to leave in December when I ran out of money. I'll be back next year. Hello to Franz and Badim Bador. Michel. No. No. I put the card back and hoisted myself upstairs. Postcards are all alike. Do you remember me? Exactly. But that letter to George, now about half an inch thick, maybe six or eight ounces, some sort of epic for sure, and apparently written in Nepal, which naturally made it more interesting to me. I'd spent most of the previous several years in Nepal, you see, climbing and guiding treks and hanging out, and the rest of the world was beginning to seem pretty unreal. These days I felt the same sort of admiration for the ingenuity of the writers of the International Herald Tribune that I used to feel for the writers of the National Enquirer. Cheese, I'd think, as I scanned a tribby in front of a Tamel bookstore, and read of strange wars, unlikely summits, bizarre hijackings. How do they think these things up? But an epic from Nepal? Now, that was reality, and addressed to a George F. Maybe they had misspelled the last name, eh? And anyway, it was clear, by the way the letter was doubled over, and the envelope falling apart, that it had been stuck there for years, a dead loss to the world if someone didn't save it and read it. All that agony of emotions, of brain cells, of finger muscles, all wasted. It was a damn shame. So I took it. 2. My room, one of the nicest in all Tamel, was on the fourth floor of the Star. The view was eastward, toward the tall, bat-filled trees of the King's Palace, overlooking the jumble of Tamel shops. A lot of big evergreens dotted the confusion of buildings. In fact, from my height, it looked like a city of trees. 
In the distance, I could see the green hills that contained the Kathmandu Valley, and before the clouds formed in the mornings, I could even see some white spikes of the Himal to the north. The room itself was simple, a bed and a chair under the light of a single bare bulb hanging from the ceiling. But what else do you really need? It's true that the bed was lumpy, but with my foam pad from my climbing gear laid over it to level it out, it was fine. And I had my own bathroom. It's true the seatless toilet leaked pretty badly, but since the shower poured directly onto the floor and leaked also, it didn't matter. It was also true that the shower came in two parts, a waist-high faucet and a shower head near the ceiling, and the shower head didn't work so that to take a shower I had to sit on the floor under the faucet. But that was okay. It was all okay, because that shower was hot. The water heater was right there in the room, hanging over the toilet, and the water that came from it was so hot that when I took a shower, I actually had to turn on the cold water, too. That in itself made it one of the finest bathrooms in Tamel. Anyway, this room and bath had been my castle for about a month, while I waited for my next trekkers group from Want to Take You Higher Limited to arrive. When I entered it with the lifted letter in hand, I had to kick my way through clothes, climbing gear, sleeping bag, food, books, maps, tribbies, sweep a pile of such stuff off of the chair, and clear a space for the chair by the windowsill. Then I sat down and tried to open the bent old envelope without actually ripping it. No way. It wasn't a Nepali envelope, and there was some real glue on the flap. I did what I could, but the CIA wouldn't have been proud of me. Out it came. Eight sheets of lined paper folded twice like most letters and then bent double by the rack, writing on both sides. The handwriting was miniaturized and neurotically regular, as easy to read as a paperback. The first page was dated June 2nd, 1985. So much for my guess concerning its age, but I would have sworn the envelope looked four or five years old. That's Kathmandu dust for you. A sentence near the beginning was underlined heavily. You must not tell anybody about this. Whoa. Heavy. I glanced out the window even. A letter with some secrets in it. How great! I tilted the chair back, flattened the pages, and began to read. June 2nd, 1985. Dear Freds, I know, it's a miracle to even get a postcard from me, much less a letter like this one's going to be. But an amazing thing has happened to me, and you're the only friend I can trust to keep it to himself. You must not tell anybody about this, okay? I know you won't. Ever since we were roommates in the dorm, you've been the one I can talk to about anything in confidence. And I'm glad I've got a friend like you, because I've found I really have to tell this to somebody or go crazy. As you may or may not remember, I got my master's in zoology at UC Davis soon after you left. And I put in more years than I care to recall on a PhD there before I got disgusted and quit. I wasn't going to have anything more to do with any of that. But last fall, I got a letter from a friend I had shared an office with, a Sarah Hornsby. She was going to be part of a zoological botanical expedition to the Himalayas, a camp modeled on the Cronin expedition, where a broad range of specialists set up near treeline in as pure a wilderness as they can conveniently get to. They wanted me along because of my extensive experience in Nepal, meaning they wanted me to be Sirdar, and my degree didn't have a thing to do with it. That was fine by me. I took the job and went hacking away at the bureaucratic underbrush in Kathmandu. You would have done it better, but I did okay. Central Immigration, Ministry of Tourism, Forests and Parks, Arnak, the whole horrible routine which clearly was designed by someone who had read too much Kafka. But eventually it got done, and I took off in the early spring with four animal behaviorists, three botanists, and a ton of supplies, and flew north. We were joined at the airstrip by 22 local porters and a real sirdar, and we started trekking. I'm not going to tell you exactly where we went, not because of you, it's just too dangerous to commit it to print. But we were up near the top of one of the watersheds, near the crest of the Himalayas and the border with Tibet. 
You know how those valleys end. Tributaries keep getting higher and higher, and finally there is a last set of box canyon-type valleys fingering up into the highest peaks. We set our base camp where three of these dead-end valleys met, and members of the group could head upstream or down depending on their project. There was a trail to the camp, and a bridge over the river near it, but the three upper valleys were wilderness, and it was tough to get through the forest up into them. It was what these folks wanted, however. Untouched wilderness. Almost. When the camp was set, the porters left, and there the eight of us were. My old friend Sarah Hornsby was the ornithologist. She's quite good at it, and I spent some time working with her. But she had a boyfriend along. The mammalogist. No, not that, Fred's. Phil Adrakian. I didn't like him much from the start. He was the expedition leader, and absolutely missed her animal behavior. But he sure had a tough time finding any mammals up there. Then Valerie Budge was the entomologist. No problem finding suspects for her, eh? Yes, she did bug me. Another expert. And Armand Ray was the herpetologist, though he ended up helping Phil a lot with the night blinds. The botanists were named Kitty, Dominique, and John. They spent a lot of time to themselves, in a large tent full of plant samplings. So, camp life with a zoological expedition. I don't suppose you've ever experienced it. Compared to a climbing expedition, it isn't that exciting, I'll tell you. On this one, I spent the first week or two crossing the bridge and establishing the best routes through the forest into the three high valleys. After that, I held Sarah with her project, mostly. But the whole time, I entertained myself watching this crew, being an animal behaviorist for the animal behaviorists, so to speak. What interests me, having once given it a try and decided it wasn't worth it, is why others carry on following animals around, then explaining every little thing you see, and then arguing intensely with everyone else about the explanations for a career. Why on earth would anyone do it? I talked about it with Sarah one day when we were up the middle valley looking for beehives. I told her I had formed a classification system. She laughed. Taxonomy. You can't escape your training. And she asked me to tell her about it. First, I said, there were the people who had a genuine and powerful fascination with animals. She was that way herself, I said, when she saw a bird flying, there was a look on her face. It was like she was seeing a miracle. She wasn't so sure she approved of that. You have to be scientifically detached, you know. But she admitted the type certainly existed. Then, I said, there were the stalkers. These people liked to crawl around in the bush, tailing other creatures, like kids playing a game. I went on to explain why I thought this was such a powerful urge. It seemed to me that the life it led to was very similar to the lives led by our primitive ancestors for a million long years living in camps, stalking animals in the woods. To get back to that style of life is a powerfully satisfying feeling. Sarah agreed and pointed out that it was also true that nowadays when you got sick of camp life, you could go out and sit in a hot bath, drinking brandy and listening to Beethoven, as she put it. That's right, I said, and even in camp there's quite a nightlife. You've got all your Dostoevsky and your arguments over E.O. Wilson. It's the best of both worlds. Yeah, I think most of you are stalkers on some level. But you always say you people, Sarah pointed out to me. Why are you outside at Nathan? Why did you quit? And here it got serious. For a few years we had been on the same path, and now we weren't, because I had left it. I thought carefully about how to explain myself. Maybe it's because of type 3, the theorists. Because we must remember that animal behavior is a very respectable academic field. It has to have its intellectual justification. You can't just go into the academic senate and say, Distinguished colleagues, we do it because we like the way birds fly, and it's fun to crawl in the bushes. Sarah laughed at that. It's true. And I mentioned ecology and the balance of nature, population biology and the preservation of species, evolution theory and how life became what it is, sociobiology and the underlying causes for social behavior. 
But she objected, pointing out that those were real concerns. Sociobiology, I asked. She winced. I admitted then that there were indeed some excellent angles for justifying the study of animals, but I claimed that for some people these became the most important part of the field. As I said, for most of the people in our department, the theories became more important than the animals. What they observed in the field was just more data for their theory. What interested them was on the page or at the conference, and a lot of them only do field work because you have to prove you can. Oh, Nathan, she said, you sound cynical, but cynics are just idealists who have been disappointed. I remember that about you. You're such an idealist. I know, Freds. You will be agreeing with her. Nathan Howe, idealist. And maybe I am. That's what I told her. Maybe I am. But geez, the atmosphere in the department made me sick. Theorists backstabbing each other over their pet ideas and sounding just as scientific as they could when it isn't really scientific at all. You can't test these theories by designing an experiment and looking for reproducibility, and you can't isolate your factors or vary them or use controls. It's just observation and untestable hypothesis over and over. And yet they acted like such solid scientists, math models and all, like chemists or something. It's just scientism. Sarah shook her head at me. You're too idealistic, Nathan. You want things perfect, but it isn't so simple. If you want to study animals, you have to make compromises. As for your classification system, you should write it up for the sociobiological review. But it's just a theory, remember? If you forget that, you fall into the trap yourself. She had a point. And besides, we caught sight of some bees and had to hurry to follow them upstream. So the conversation ended. But during the following evenings in the tent, when Valerie Budge was explaining to us how human society behaved pretty much like ants, or when Sarah's boyfriend, a Drakian, frustrated by his lack of sightings, went off on long analytical jags like he was the hottest theorist since Robert Trivers, she would give me a look and smile, and I knew I had made my point. Actually, though he talked a big line, I don't think a Drakian was all that good. His publications wouldn't exactly give a porter back strain, if you know what I mean. I couldn't figure out what Sarah saw in him. One day, soon after that, Sarah and I returned to the Middle High Valley to hunt again for beehives. It was a cloudless morning, a classic Himalayan forest climb. Cross the bridge, hike among the boulders in the stream bed, ascending from pool to pool, then up through damp trees and underbrush over lumpy lawns of moss, then atop the wall of the lower valley, and onto the floor of the upper valley, much clearer and sunnier up there in a big rhododendron forest. The rhododendron blooms still flared on every branch, and with the flower's pink intensity and the long cones of sunlight shafting down through the leaves to illuminate rough black bark, orange fungi, bright green ferns, it was like hiking through a dream. And 3,000 feet above us soared a snowy horseshoe ring of peaks, the Himalayas, you know. So we were in good spirits as we hiked up this high valley, following the stream bed, and we were in luck, too. Above one small turn and lift, the stream widened into a long, narrow pool. On the south face above it was a cliff of striated, yellowish granite, streaked with big, horizontal cracks. And spilling down from these cracks were beehives. Parts of the cliff seemed to pulsate blackly. Clouds of bees drifted in front of it, and above the quiet sound of the stream I could hear the mellow buzz of the bees going about their work. Excited, Sarah and I sat on a rock in the sun, got out our binoculars, and started watching for bird life. Gorax up valley on the snow, a lammergeier sailing over the peaks, finches beeping around as always, and then I saw it. A flick of yellow just bigger than the biggest hummingbird, a warbler bobbing on a twig that hung before the hive cliff, down it flew to a fallen piece of hive wax. Peck, peck, peck. Wax into bird. A honey warbler. I nudged Sarah and pointed it out, but she had already seen it. We were still for a long time, watching. 
Edward Cronin, leader of a previous expedition of this kind to the Himalayas, did one of the first extensive studies of the honey warbler, and I knew that Sarah wanted to check his observations and continue the work. Honey warblers are unusual birds, in that they manage to live off the excess wax of the honeycombs with the help of some bacteria in their gastrointestinal systems. It's a digestive feat hardly any other creature on Earth has managed, and it's obviously a good move for the bird, as it means they have a very large food source that nothing else is interested in. This makes them very worthy of study, though they hadn't gotten a whole lot of it up to that point, something Sarah hoped to change. When the warbler, quick and yellow, flew out of sight, Sarah stirred at last, took a deep breath, leaned over and hugged me, kissed me on the cheek. Thanks for getting me here, Nathan. I was uncomfortable. The boyfriend, you know. And Sarah was so much finer a person than he was. And besides, I was remembering back when we shared that office, she had come in one night all upset because the boyfriend of the time had declared for someone else. And what with one thing and another, well, I don't want to talk about it, but we had been good friends and I still felt a lot of that. So to me, it wasn't just a peck on the cheek, if you know what I mean. Anyway, I'm sure I got all awkward and formal in my usual way. In any case, we were pretty pleased at our discovery and we returned to the honey cliff every day after that for a week. It was a really nice time. Then Sarah wanted to continue some studies she had started of the Gorax, and so I hiked up onto Honeycliff on my own a few times. It was on one of those days by myself that it happened. The warbler didn't show up, and I continued upstream to see if I could find the source. Clouds were rolling up from the valley below, and it looked like it would rain later, but it was still sunny up where I was. I reached the source of the stream, a spring-fed pool at the bottom of a talus slope, and stood watching it pour down into the world. One of those quiet Himalayan moments where the world seems like an immense chapel. Then a movement across the pool caught my eye, there in the shadow of two gnarled oak trees. I froze, but I was right out in the open for anyone to see. There, under one of the oaks, in shadow darker for the sunlight, a pair of eyes watched me. They were about my height off the ground. I thought it might be a bear, and was mentally reviewing the trees behind me for climbability when it moved again. It blinked and then I saw that the eyes had whites visible around the iris. A villager? Out hunting? I didn't think so. My heart began to hammer away inside me, and I couldn't help swallowing. Surely that was some sort of face there in the shadows. A bearded face. Of course I had an idea what I might be trading glances with. The yeti, the mountain man, the elusive creature of the snows, the abominable snowman for God's sake. My heart's never pounded faster. What to do? The whites of its eyes— Baboons have white eyelids that they use to make threats, and if you look at them directly, they see the white of your eyes and believe you are threatening them. On the off chance that this creature had a similar code, I tilted my head down and looked at him indirectly. I swear it appeared to nod back at me. Then another blink, only the eyes didn't return. The bearded face and the shape below it were gone. I started breathing again, listened hard as I could, but I never heard anything except for the chuckle of the stream. After a minute or two, I crossed the stream and took a look at the ground under the oak. It was mossy, and there were areas of moss that had been stepped on by something at least as heavy as me. But no clear tracks, of course, and nothing more than that in any direction. I hiked back down to camp in a daze. I hardly saw a thing and jumped at every little sound. You can imagine how I felt, a sighting like that. And that very night, while I was trying to quietly eat my stew and not reveal that anything had happened, the group's conversation veered onto the topic of the Yeti. I almost dropped my fork. It was a Drakian again. He was frustrated at the fact that despite all of the spoor visible in the area, he had only actually seen some squirrels and a distant monkey or two. Of course, it would have helped if he'd spent the night in the night blinds more often. Anyway, he wanted to bring up something, to be the center of attention, and take the stage as the expert. 
You know these high valleys are exactly the zone the Yeti live in, he announced matter-of-factly. That's when the fork almost left me. It's almost certain they exist, of course, Adrakian went on with a funny smile. Oh, Philip, Sarah said. She said that to him a lot these days, which didn't bother me at all. It's true. Then he went into the whole bit, which of course all of us knew. The tracks in the snow that Eric Shipton photographed, George Schaller's support for the idea, the prints that Cronin's party found, the many other sightings. There are thousands of square miles of impenetrable mountain wilderness here, as we now know firsthand. Of course I didn't need any convincing, and the others were perfectly willing to concede the notion. "'Wouldn't that be something if we found one?' Valerie said. "'Got some good photos.' "'Or found a body,' John said. "'Botanists think in terms of stationary subjects.' Phil nodded slowly. "'Or if we captured a live one.' "'We'd be famous,' Valerie said. "'Theorists. They might even get their names Latinized and made part of the new species' name. "'Gorilla Montani Adrachianus Bujan.' "'I couldn't help myself. I had to speak up. "'If we found good evidence of a yeti,' It would be our duty to get rid of it and forget about it, I said, perhaps a bit too loudly. They all stared at me. Whatever for, Valerie said. For the sake of the Yeti, obviously, I said. As animal behaviorists, you're presumably concerned about the welfare of the animals you study, right? And the ecospheres they live in. But if the existence of the Yeti were confirmed, it would be disastrous for both. There would be an invasion of expeditions, tourists, poachers, Yetis in zoos, and primate center cages, and laboratories under the knife, stuffed in museums. I was getting upset. I mean, what's the real value of the Yeti for us, anyway? They only stared at me. Value? Their value is the fact that they're unknown, that they're beyond science. They're the part of the wilderness we can't touch. I can see Nathan's point, Sarah remarked in the ensuing silence, with a look at me that made me lose my train of thought. Her agreement meant an awful lot more than I would have expected. The others were shaking their heads. A nice sentiment, Valerie said, but really, hardly any of them will be affected by study. Think what they'd add to our knowledge of primate evolution. Finding one would be a contribution to science, Phil said, glaring at Sarah. And he really believed that, too. I had to give him that. Armat said slyly, It wouldn't do any harm to our chances for tenure, either. There is that, Phil admitted. But the real point is, you have to abide by what's true. If we found a yeti, we'd be obliged to say so, because it was so, no matter how we felt about it. Otherwise, you get into suppressing data, altering data, all that kind of thing. I shook my head. There are values that are more important than scientific integrity. And the argument went on from there, mostly repeating points. You're an idealist, Phil said to me at one point. You can't do zoology without disturbing some subject animals to a certain extent. Maybe that's why I got out, I said, and I had to stop myself from going further. How could I say that he was corrupted by the tremendous job pressures in the field to the point where he'd do anything to make a reputation without the argument getting ugly? Impossible. And Sarah would be upset with me. I only sighed. What about the subject animal? Valerie said indignantly, They'd drink it, study it, put it back in its environment, maybe keep one in captivity where it would live a lot more comfortably than in the wild. Total corruption. Even the botanists looked uncomfortable with that one. I don't think we have to worry, Armat said with his sly smile. The beast is supposed to be nocturnal. Because Phil had shown no enthusiasm for night blinds, you see. Exactly why I'm starting a high-valley night blind, Phil snapped, tired of Armat's needling. Nathan, I'll need you to come along and help set it up. And find the way, I said. The others continued to argue, Sarah taking my position, or at least something sympathetic to it. I retired, worried about the figure in the shadows I had seen that day. 
Phil watched me suspiciously as I left. So Phil had his way, and we set up a tiny blind in the upper valley to the west of the one I had made the sighting in. We spent several nights up in an oak tree and saw a lot of Himalayan spotted deer and some monkeys at dawn. Phil should have been pleased, but he only got sullen. It occurred to me from some of his mutterings that he had hoped all along to find the Yeti. He had come craving that big discovery. And then one night it happened. The moon was gibbous, and thin clouds let most of its light through. About two hours before dawn I was in a doze, and a Drakian elbowed me. Wordlessly, he pointed at the far side of a small pool in the stream. Shadows and shadows, shifting, a streak of moonlight on the water, then, silhouetted above it, an upright figure. For a moment I saw its head clearly, a tall, oddly-shaped furry skull. It looked almost human. I wanted to shout a warning. Instead, I shifted my weight on the platform. It creaked very slightly, and instantly the figure was gone. Idiot, Phil whispered. In the moonlight, he looked murderous. I'm going after him. He jumped out of the tree and pulled what I assumed was a tranquilizer pistol from his down jacket. You can't find anything out there at night, I whispered. But he was gone. I climbed down and took off after him, with what purpose I wasn't sure. Well, you know the forest at night. Not a chance of seeing animals or of getting around very easily, either. I have to give it to a Drakian. He was fast and quiet. I lost him immediately, and after that only heard an occasional snapped branch in the distance. More than an hour passed, and I was only wandering through the trees. The moon had set, and the sky was about halfway to dawnlight when I returned to the stream. I rounded a big boulder that stood on the bank and almost ran straight into a yeti coming the other way, as if we were on a busy sidewalk and had veered the same direction to avoid each other. He was a little shorter than me, Dark fur covered his body and head, but left his face clear, a patch of pinkish skin that in the dim light looked quite human. His nose was as much human as primate, broad but protruding from his face, like an extension of the occipital crest that ridged his skull fore to aft. His mouth was broad, and his jaw, under its ruff of fur, very broad, but nothing that took him outside the parameters of human possibility. He had thick eyebrow crests bent high over his eyes, so that he had a look of permanent surprise, like a cat I once owned. At this moment, I'm sure he really was surprised. We both were as still as trees, swaying gently in the wind of our confrontation, but no other movement. I wasn't even breathing. What to do? I noticed he was carrying a small, smooth stick, and there in the fur on his neck were some objects on a cord. His face, tools, ornamentation. A part of me, the part outside the shock of it all, was thinking, I suppose I am still a zoologist at heart. They aren't just primates. They're hominid. As if to confirm this idea, he spoke to me. He hummed briefly, squeaked, sniffed the air hard a few times, lifted his lip, quite a canine was revealed, and whistled very softly. In his eyes there was a question so calmly, gently, and intelligently put forth that I could hardly believe I couldn't understand and answer it. I raised my hand, very slowly, and tried to say hello. I know, stupid, but what do you say when you meet a yeti? Anyway, nothing came out but a strangled... <laughs> He tilted his head to the side inquisitively and repeated the sound. <laughs> Suddenly he jacked his head forward and stared past me, upstream. He opened his mouth wide and stood there listening. He stared at me, trying to judge me. I swear I could tell these things. Upstream there was a crash of branches, and he took me by the arm and wham, we were atop the stream bank and in the forest. Hoppity hop through the trees and we were down on our bellies behind a big fallen log, lying side by side in squishy wet moss. My arm hurt.
Phil Adrakian appeared down in the stream bed, looking considerably the worse for wear. He'd scraped through some brush and torn the nylon of his down jacket in several places so that fluffy white down wafted away from him as he walked, and he'd fallen in mud somewhere. The Yeti squinted hard as he looked at him, clearly mystified by the escaping down. "'Nathan!' Phil cried. "'Nathan!' He was still filled with energy, it seemed. "'I saw one! Nathan, where are you, damn it!' He continued downstream, yelling, and the Yeti and I lay there and watched him pass by. I don't know if I've ever experienced a more satisfying moment. When he had disappeared around a bend in the stream, the Yeti sat up and sprawled back against the log like a tired backpacker. The sun rose, and he only squeaked, whistled, breathed slowly, watched me. What was he thinking? At this point, I didn't have a clue. It was even frightening me. I couldn't imagine what might happen next. His hands, longer and skinnier than human hands, plucked at my clothes. He plucked at his own necklace, pulled it up over his head. What looked like fat seashells were strung on a cord of braided hemp. They were fossils, of shells very like scallop shells, evidence of the Himalayas' days underwater. What did the Yeti make of them? No way of knowing. But clearly they were valued. They were part of a culture. For a long time he just looked at this necklace of his. Then, very carefully, he placed this necklace over my head, around my neck. My skin burned in an instant flush. Everything blurred through tears. My throat hurt. I felt just like God had stepped from behind a tree and blessed me. And for no reason, you know, I didn't deserve it. Without further ado, he hopped up and walked off bow-leggedly, without a glance back. I was left alone in the morning light with nothing except for the necklace, which hung solidly on my chest, and a sore arm. So it had happened. I hadn't dreamed it. I had been blessed. When I had collected my wits, I hiked downstream and back to camp. By the time I got there, the necklace was deep in one of my down jacket's padded pockets, and I had a story all worked out. Phil was already there, chattering to the entire group. "'There you are!' he shouted. "'Where the hell were you? I was beginning to think they had gotten you!' "'I was looking for you,' I said, finding it very easy to feign irritation. "'Who's this they?' "'The Yeti, you fool! You saw him too, don't deny it! And I followed him and saw him again up the river there!' I shrugged and looked at him dubiously. I didn't see anything. You weren't in the right place. You should have been with me. He turned to the others. We'll shift the camp up there for a few days, very quietly. It's an unprecedented opportunity. Valerie was nodding. Armat was nodding. Even Sarah looked convinced. The botanists looked happy to have some excitement. I objected that moving that many people up valley would be difficult and disruptive to whatever life was up there, and I suggested what Phil had seen was a bear. But Phil wasn't having it. What I saw had a big occipital crest and walked upright. It was a yeti. So, despite my protests, plans were made to move the camp to the high valley and commence an intensive search for the yeti. I didn't know what to do. More protests from me would only make it look suspiciously like I had seen what Phil had seen. I had never been very clever at thinking up subterfuges to balk the plans of others. That's why I left the university in the first place. I was at my wit's end when the weather came through for me with an early monsoon rainstorm. It gave me an idea. The watershed for our valley was big and steep, and one day's hard rain, which we got, would quickly elevate the level of water in our river. We had to cross the bridge before we could start up the three high valleys, and we had to cross two more to get back to the airstrip. So I had my chance. In the middle of the night, I snuck out and went down to the bridge. It was the usual village job, piles of big stones on each bank supporting the three half-logs of the span. The river was already washing the bottom of the stone piles, and some levering with a long branch collapsed the one on our shore. It was a strange feeling to ruin a bridge, one of the most valuable human works in the Himalayas, but I went at it with a will. 
Quickly the logs slumped and fell away from each other, and the end of the downstream one floated away. It was easy enough to get the other two underway as well. Then I snuck back into camp and into bed, and that was that. Next day I shook my head regretfully at the discovery and mentioned that the flooding would be worse downstream. I wondered if we had enough food to last through the monsoon, which of course we didn't, and another hour's hard rain was enough to convince Armat and Valerie and the botanists that the season was up. Phil's shrill protests lost out, and we broke camp and left the following morning in a light mist that turned to brilliant wet sunshine by noon. But by then, we were well down trail and committed. There you have it, Freds. Are you still reading? I lied to, concealed data from, and eventually scared off the expedition of old colleagues that hired me. But you can see I had to do it. There is a creature up there, intelligent and full of peace. Civilization would destroy it. And that yeti who hid with me, somehow he knew I was on their side. Now it's a trust I'd give my life to uphold, really. You can't betray something like that. On the hike back out, Phil continued to insist he had seen a yeti, and I continued to disparage the idea until Sarah began to look at me funny. And I regret to report that she and Phil became friendly once again as we neared Jay and the end of our hike out. Maybe she felt sorry for him. Maybe she knew somehow that I was acting in bad faith. I wouldn't doubt it. She knew me pretty well, but it was depressing, whatever the reason, and nothing to be done about it. I had to conceal what I knew and lie, no matter how much it screwed up that friendship, and no matter how much it hurt. So when we arrived at Jay, I said goodbye to them all. I was pretty sure that the funding difficulties endemic in zoology would keep them away for a good long time to come, so that was okay. And as for Sarah, well, damn it. A bit reproachfully, I said farewell to her, and I hiked back to Kathmandu rather than fly to get away from her and work things off a bit. The nights on this hike back have been so long that I finally decided to write this to occupy my mind. I hoped writing it all down would help, too, but the truth is I've never felt lonelier. It's been a comfort to imagine you going nuts over my story. I can just see you jumping around the room and shouting, You're kidding! at the top of your lungs, like you used to. I hope to fill you in on any missing details when I see you in person this fall in Kathmandu. Till then, your friend, Nathan. 3. Well, blow my mind. When I finished reading that letter, all I could say was, Wow. I went back to the beginning and started to reread the whole thing, but quickly skipped ahead to the good parts. A meeting with the famed abominable snowman? What an event. Of course, all this Nathan guy had managed to get out was, huh. But the circumstances were unusual, and I suppose he did his best. I've always wanted to meet a Yeti myself. Countless mornings in the Himal, I've gotten up in the light before dawn and wandered out to take a leak and see what the day was going to be like, and almost every time, especially in the high forests, I've looked around and wondered if that twitch at the corner of my sleep-crusted eye wasn't something abominable, moving. It never had been, so far as I know, and I found myself a bit envious of this Nathan and his tremendous luck. Why had this Yeti, member of the shyest race in Central Asia, been so relaxed with him? It was a mystery to consider as I went about in the next few days doing my business, and I wished I could do more than that somehow. I checked the star's register to look for both Nathan and George Fredericks, and found Nathan's perfect little signature back in mid-June, but no sign of George, or Fred's as Nathan called him. The letter implied they would both be around this fall, but where? Then I had to ship some Tibetan carpets to the States, and my company wanted me to clear three video treks with the Ministry of Tourism at the same time that Central Immigration decided I had been in the country long enough, and dealing with these matters in the city where mailing a letter can take you all day made me busy indeed. I almost forgot about it. 
but when I came into the star late one sunny blue afternoon and saw that some guy had gone berserk at the mail rack, had taken it down and scattered the poor paper corpses all over the first flight of stairs, I had a feeling I might know what the problem was. I was startled, maybe even a little guilty feeling, but not at all displeased. I squashed the little pang of guilt and stepped past the two clerks, who were protesting in rapid Nepali. "'Can I help you find something?' I said to the distraught person who had wreaked the havoc. He straightened up and looked me straight in the eye. Straight shooter, all the way. I'm looking for a friend of mine who usually stays here. He wasn't panicked yet, but he was close. The clerks say he hasn't been here in a year, but I sent him a letter this summer and it's gone. Contact. Without batting an eye, I said, maybe he dropped by and picked it up without checking in. He winced like I'd stuck a knife in him. He looked about like what I had expected from his epic, tall, upright, dark-haired. He had a beard as thick and fine as fur, neatly trimmed away from the neck and below the eyes. Just about a perfect beard, in fact. That beard and a jacket with leather elbows would have got him tenure at any university in America. But now he was seriously distraught, though he was trying not to show it. I don't know how I'm going to find him then. Are you sure he's in, Katmandu? He's supposed to be. He's joining a big climb in two weeks, but he always stays here. Sometimes it's full. Maybe he had to go somewhere else. Yeah, that's true. Suddenly, he came out of his distraction enough to notice he was talking to me, and his clear, gray-green eyes narrowed as he examined me. George Ferguson, I said, and stuck out my hand. He tried to crush it, but I resisted just in time. My name's Nathan Howe. Funny about yours, he said without a smile. I'm looking for a George Fredericks. Is that right? What a coincidence. I started picking up all the stars bent mail. Well, maybe I can help you. I've had to find friends in Kathmandu before. It's not easy, but it can be done. Yeah? It was like I'd thrown him a life buoy. What was his problem? Sure. If he's going on a climb, he's had to go to central immigration to buy the permits for it. And on the permits, you have to write down your local address. I've spent too many hours at CI and have some friends there. If we slip them a couple hundred rupees back sheesh, they'll look it up for us. Fantastic. Now he was hope personified, actually quivering with it. Can we go now? I saw that his heartthrob, the girlfriend of the unscrupulous one, had had him pegged. He was an idealist, and his ideas shined through him like the mantle of a Coleman lantern gleaming through the glass. Only a blind woman wouldn't have been able to tell how he felt about her. I wondered how this Sarah had felt about him. I shook my head. It's past two, closed for the day. We got the rack back on the wall, and then the clerks returned to the front desk. But there's a couple of other things we can try if you want. Nathan nodded, stuffing mail as he watched me. Whenever I try to check in here and it's full, I just go next door. We could look there. Okay, Nathan said, completely fired up. Let's go. So we walked out of the star and turned right to investigate at the Lodge Pheasant, or Lodge Pleasant. The sign is ambiguous on that point. Sure enough, George Fredericks had been staying there. Checked out that very morning, in fact. Oh my God, no, Nathan cried as if the guy had just died. Panic time was really getting close. Yes, the clerk said brightly pleased to have found the name in his thick book. He is go on trek. But he's not due to leave here for two weeks, Nathan protested. He's probably off on his own first, I said, or with friends. That was it for Nathan. Panic, despair, he had to go sit down. I thought about it. If he was flying out, I heard all of Arnak's flights to the mountains were canceled today, so maybe he came back in and went to dinner. Does he know Katmandu well? Nathan nodded glumly. About as well as anybody. Let's try the old Vienna Inn, then. Four. In the blue of early evening, Tamel was jumping as usual. Lights snapped on in the storefronts that opened on the street, and people were milling about, 
Big Land Rovers and little Toyota taxis forged through the crowd, abusing their horns. Cows in the street chewed their cud and stared at it all with expressions of faint surprise, as if they'd been magically zipped out of a pasture just seconds before. Nathan and I walked single file against the storefronts, dodging bikes and jumping over the frequent puddles. We passed carpet shops, climbing outfitters, restaurants, used bookstores, trekking agents, hotels, and souvenir stands. And as we made our way, we turned down a hundred offers from the young men of the street. Change money? No. Smoke dope? No. Buy a nice carpet? No. Good hash? No. Change money? No. Long ago, I had simplified walking in the neighborhood and just said no to everyone I passed. No, 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 no. Nathan had a different method that seemed to work just as well, or better because the hustlers didn't think I was negative enough. He would nod politely with that straight shooter look and say, no, thank you, and leave them open-mouthed in the street. We passed KC's, threaded our way through Times Square, a crooked intersection with a perpetual traffic jam, and started down the street that led out of Tamel into the rest of Kathmandu. Two merchants stood in the doorway of their shop, singing along with a cassette of Pink Floyd's The Wall. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. I almost got run over by a bike. Where the street widened and the paving began, I pushed a black goat to one side and we leaped over a giant puddle into a tunnel-like hall that penetrated one of the ramshackle street-side buildings. In the hall, turn left up scuzzy concrete stairs. Have you been here before? I asked Nathan. No, I always go to KC's or Red Square. He looked as though he wasn't sorry either. At the top of the stairs, we opened the door and stepped into the Austro-Hungarian Empire. White tablecloths, paneled partitions between deep booths, red wallpaper in a fleur-de-lis pattern, plush upholstery, tasteful kitschy lamps over every table, and, suffusing the air, the steamy, pungent smell of sauerkraut and goulash. Strauss waltzes on the box. Except for the faint honking from the street below, it was absolutely the real item. My lord, Nathan said, how did they get this here? It's mostly her doing. The owner and resident culinary genius, a big, plump, friendly woman, came over and greeted me in stiff Germanic English. Hello, Eva. We're looking for a friend. But then Nathan was already past us and rushing down toward a small booth at the back. I think he finds him, Eva said with a smile. By the time I got to the table, Nathan was pumping the arm of a short, long-haired blonde guy in his late thirties, slapping his back, babbling with relief, overwhelmed with relief by the look of it. Freds, thank God I found you. Good to see you too, bud. Pretty lucky, actually. I was going to split with some Brits for the hills this morning, but old reliability negative airline bombed out again. Fred's had a faint southern or country accent and talked as fast as anyone I'd ever heard, sometimes faster. I know, Nathan said. He looked up and saw me. Actually, my new friend here figured it out. George Ferguson, this is George Fredericks. We shook hands. Nice name, George said. Call me Fred's. Everyone does. We slid in around his table while Fred's explained that the friends he was going to go climbing with were finding them rooms. So what are you up to, Nathan? I didn't even know you were in Nepal. I thought you were back in the States working or saving wildlife refuges or something. I was, Nathan said, and his grim, do-or-die expression returned. But I had to come back. Listen, you didn't get my letter? Naw. Did you write me? said Fred's. Nathan stared right at me, and I looked as innocent as I could. I'm going to have to take you into my confidence, he said to me. I don't know you very well, but you've been a big help today, and the way things are, I can't really be fastidious. No, 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 I can't be overcautious, you see. I tend to be overcautious, just as Fred's will tell you, but I need help now. And he was dead serious. Just giving you a hard time, I reassured him, trying to look trustworthy, loyal, and all that. Difficult, given the big grin on Fred's face. 
Well, here goes, Nathan said, speaking to both of us. I've got to tell you what happened to me on the expedition I helped in the spring. It still isn't easy to talk about, but... And ducking his head, leaning forward, lowering his voice, he told us the tale I had read about in his lost letter. Fred's and I leaned forward as well, so that our heads practically knocked over the table. I did all I could to indicate my shocked surprise at the high points of the story, but I didn't have to worry about that too much, because Fred's supplied all the amazement necessary. You're kidding! he'd say. No, incredible. I can't believe it. Yetis are usually so skittish. And this one just stood there? You're kidding. And fuck incredible, man. I can't believe it. How great. What? Oh, no, you didn't. And when Nathan told about the Yeti giving him the necklace, sure enough, just as Nathan had predicted, Fred's jumped up out of the booth and leaned back in and shouted, You're kidding! Shh, Nathan hissed, putting his face down on the tablecloth. No, get back down here, Fred's, please. So he sat down, and Nathan went on to the same sort of response. You tore the fucking bridge down? Shh! And when he was done, we all leaned back in the booth, exhausted. Slowly, the other customers stopped staring at us. I cleared my throat. But then today, you, um, you indicated there was still a problem, or some new problem? Nathan nodded, lips pursed. A Drakian went back and got money from a rich old guy in the States whose hobby used to be big game hunting, J. Reeves Fitzgerald. Now he keeps a kind of photo zoo on a big estate. He came over here with a Drakian and Valerie and Sarah too even, and they went right back up to the camp we had in the spring. I found out about it from Armat and came here as quick as I could. Right after I arrived, they checked into a suite at the Sheraton. A bellboy told me they came in a Land Rover with its windows draped, and he saw someone funny hustled upstairs, and now they're locked into that suite like it's a fort. And I'm afraid. I think, I think they've got one up there. Fred's and I looked at each other. How long ago was this? I asked. Just two days ago. I've been hunting for Fred's ever since. I didn't know what else to do. Fred said, What about that Sarah? She's still with him? Yes, Nathan said, looking at the table. I can't believe it, but she is. He shook his head. If they're hiding a Yeti up there, if they've got one, then, well, it's all over for the Yetis. It'll just be a disaster for them. I suppose that was true enough. Fred's was nodding automatically, agreeing just because Nathan had said it. It'll be a zoo up there. <laughs> so you'll help? Nathan asked. Course, man, naturally. Fred's looked surprised Nathan would even ask. I'd like to, I said. And that was the truth, too. The guy brought it out in you somehow. Thanks, said Nathan. He looked very relieved. But what about this climb you were going on, Fred's? No prob. I was a late add-on anyway, just for fun. They'll be fine. I was beginning to wonder about them this time anyway. They got themselves a trivial pursuit game for this climb to keep from going bonkers in their tents. We tried it out yesterday, and you know I'm real good at trivial pursuit except for the history, literature, and entertainment categories, but this here game was the British version, so we get a buzz on and start to play it, and suddenly I'm part of a Monty Python routine. I mean, they just don't play it the same. You know how we play it and you don't know the answer. Everyone says, huh, too bad. But here I take my turn and go for sports and leisure which is my natural forte and they pull the card and ask me who was it spelled 365 consecutive sticky wickets at the west indian cricket match of 1956 or whatever and they like to die they were laughing so hard they jumped up and danced around me and howled you don't know do you you don't have the slightest fucking idea who built those sticky wickets do you it was really hard to concentrate on my answer so going with them this time might have been a mistake anyway better to stay here and help you nathan and i could only agree then Eva came by with our food, which we had ordered after Nathan's epic. The amazing thing about the old Vienna Inn is that the food is even better than the decor. It would be good anywhere, and in Kathmandu, where almost everything tastes a little like cardboard, it's simply unbelievable. Look at this steak, Fred said. Where the hell do they get the meat? 
Didn't you ever wonder how they keep the street cow population under control? I asked. Fred's like that. I can just imagine them sneaking one of them big honkers in the back here. Wham! Nathan began to prod dubiously at his schnitzel, and then, over a perfect meal, we discussed the problem facing us. As usual in situations like this, I had a plan. There you go. Look out for next week's part two of Escape from Kathmandu. This is a fantastic story. So pleased. Josh, thank you so much again. I've got a link on to Kim Stanley Robinson's site and to Josh's. Please, please go over there and say hello. Just want a big thank you to John Joseph Adams and to Jonathan Strawn for letting us use these stories. It's just amazing. Do pop over to Nightshade Books as well, where Brave New Worlds and the best of Kim Stanley Robinson you can get. Amy, thank you so much. Just before I go, don't forget, we still have the signature cards. There are, Some has taken up the offer. If you donate £10 or more, you will get one of these signature cards that's been designed by the Fantastic D. They do look amazing, trust us. These are the signatures that have been left over from Volume 2 of Starship Sofa Stories. Donate £10, I will take your address and we'll send you one of them. As soon as D gets them to me, I'm posting them out. Don't forget, Starship Sova's Volume 2 as well. That's still getting sold. Please help Starship Sova do that. And if if you're interested in narrating and you want to come along to my workshop, I'm running a workshop on the 5th of February. Got Larry Santuro there, the the genius that is Larry Santuro that's been (laughs) winning all these awards. You know, come over there, Larry's speaking. We've got Martin doing sound, all kind of sound engineering in Adobe Audition. We have Peter Seaton Clark talking about home studios and narrations and Ray Sizemore telling me how to make money. There you go. So until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A battle race procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.